VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, May the 26th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's producing the Come On with an edition of Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So I know you heard Brian Medore mention the fact that there was a car that had rolled over on the outer ring road. I saw, I didn't see it happen, but I came upon it. I would imagine very shortly after it happened on my commute to work this morning, you couldn't even tell which direction that car was traveling. There was dirt and grass and grout on both sides of the median, and obviously had experienced the rollover. I don't know about the extent of any injury, but it looked like a fellow motorist was helping the driver out of the car when I went past, so obviously it had just happened. That's a notorious spot. That's the second time in the last six months or so that I've seen a car rolled over exactly in that spot. So I don't know what the status is of getting it cleaned up, but that's a reminder that the hydroplane can happen in a hurry. It's always remarkable to me that just how quickly the ruts form in the roads that are freshly paved and consequently are housing the water and waiting for you to maybe be going a little bit too fast, as I suppose maybe that person was, but I hope they're doing okay. And I guess it's kind of road safety week, eh? All right. So it's called the campaign this time is the focus is Take the Wheel, the Motor's Responsibility for Safe Driving in the Province. Between the RNC and the RCMP, they issued 455 tickets during the week. Speeding, of course, the most common violation. There was a total of 18 vehicles seized. Five were related to excessive speeds. Six related to impaired driving. Seven for various offenses, including lack of license and or insurance. So, Road Safety Week. And we do indeed have Minister Studley coming on the program this morning. So, a couple of things of note that we're going to discuss with the Minister. Of course, the Speed Camera Pilot Program, the ins and the outs of it. If you want to offer some thoughts or pose a potential question for her, we can do that on your behalf if we can squeeze it in. Also, her department's involvement in the Auditor General's report regarding food inspection and licensing, which was scathing. And we'll get to that with the Minister as well, well, down at Mary Brown Center last night, the Growlers got it done in OT. Just a few seconds left in the first overtime. Johnny Taconic scored the winner for a 2-1 win. They're back in the series 2-2. Pretty exciting. No one in the barn, though. That's unfortunate. And I also heard Brian mention the Jays, who stink. I mean, they've got a lovely-looking lineup, but they're doing nothing, including their opening-day starter, Alex Manoa, who kind of blew his top last night in the dugout. Well, too bad. He's not pitching very well. The bottom of the standings in the American League, American League East, toughest division in baseball. And I know this doesn't really matter to many people living in this uh, city or this province because you don't get a season's ticket to the Jays, but the Jays are spending hundreds of millions of dollars in renovations to offer premium experiences, whatever that's supposed to mean. This one is from a fellow who I know, and then it made the news today, curiously enough. It's about the price of tickets. So I'm going to Toronto this summer to visit my sister and her children, and going to go catch a couple of Jays games. You know, we're not sitting down in the front row. We're sitting in the middle and in the nosebleeds because that's what we can afford. But get a load of this. For the season ticket holders, if you had seats down in the lower bowl, paying about $15,000 for two tickets, they got an email that said, if you want to remain in your coveted seats in the third row, it's going to cost $137,000. The team later clarified that's not necessarily accurate, but it went from $15,000 to $38,000 
for the same section. Now, some of the lower seats are going to be removed when they're talking about this premium experience, but imagine paying $38,000 for a couple of season tickets for the Toronto Blue Jays. Yikes. If you're looking for something uh, interesting to do this weekend, if you're in and around town, vinyl has made an enormous comeback. You know, the CD really pushed vinyl and cassettes aside, of course, but now there's a record fair coming up at the Farmer's Market here in the city of St. John's on Freshwater Road on Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Costs two bucks to get in. I've gone to the record fair many times, came away with some pretty delicious records. So there's going to be tens of thousands of records, CDs, tapes, memorabilia, and what have you. So if you're into the vinyl or want to see what's going on at the record fair, it's Sunday from 10 to 4. Also got a couple of emails overnight. Look, you know me. I'm happy to talk about anything. Wondering why I didn't mention the passing of Tina Turner. And, of course, the fact that she spent 10 days in the city of St. John's rehearsing for her private dancer tour. We were actually at that concert. And that's preceding the old Ticketmaster days where we actually had to go down to line up to get your ticket from the box office at Memorial Stadium. At the time, it was kind of remarkable that she even made her way to the city because she was probably one of the biggest rock star, pop stars in the world at the time. Shows sold out immediately. And I'm not sure what anyone wants me to say about Tina Turner, but if you want to talk about that concert experience or maybe you ran into her as she spent the 10 days here rehearsing, but I can remember the concert and it was pretty wild. And she's a powerhouse. And, you know, there's one of those singular voices It's unmistakable. When you hear Tina Turner, a Tina Turner song, you know who it is right away. No one else sounds like her. Absolute legend. I love Tina Turner, which might sound a little bit funny, but I thought she was fantastic. Okay, let's keep going. So yesterday, the House of Assembly wrapped up their spring session. The members of the House, some 40 strong, will not return until October 16th. That's a 144-day break from sitting in the House of Assembly. On the calendar for this year, only going to sit for 39 days. Okay, so from 17 to 21, they averaged 54.8 days. In 2022, the number was 46, seven more than this year. Now, I think there is an argument to be made that there's generally not a whole lot accomplished during the sitting of the House, but it does come across as a woefully low number of days. You know, question period has gotten away from members, whether it be in our legislature or across the country. Sometimes I think it's the presence of the camera that drives some of the behaviors that we see, and oftentimes the behavior is less than the decorum that we would expect or demand from our elected representatives. Some of it comes across as quite juvenile, when in fact, scoring political points, do it on the campaign trail, evaluate, adjudicate, and conduct the people's business when you're sitting in the House of Assembly. So 39 days, not really a whole lot to brag about. Now, they go on to say that we're kind of in the middle of the pack with the number of days sat compared to other provinces. But I think if we're being fair and honest, which I will be, I really don't care what's going on in other provinces. I don't care how many days they sit in their legislature. What I do know is that the plethora of issues and concerns that people have on every single front imaginable in this province probably does require more time in that house. Maybe does require more committees to be struck and to do the people's business. Probably demands some more democratic reform. Some people think that democratic reform is simply about changing how we elect people. You know, the first past the post, the 50 plus one. Well, there's a variety of things included in democratic reform. It's always been promised or long been promised. Have we achieved any realistic advancement of reforming our Westminster system? Probably not. About 39 days on the calendar this year to sit in the House. And, of course, the budget passed. All right. Yesterday, there was also some continued conversation about the Carter-Churchill case, and rightfully so. So you know the deal. 
The poor kid sat in silence for years in elementary school, primary school, and no teacher able to speak with him in American Sign Language. I mean, the story is simply atrocious. Gone all the way through the Human Rights Commission. You know the story about the legal bill. These, the government spent about $687,000 fighting and defending the indefensible. The church or family thems- themselves spent $93,000. When asked, the premier was asked about this and why there wasn't more done by the premier, to which she said, and I'll paraphrase, he is not going to interfere in judicial proceedings. It becomes a little bit too convenient. Look, we do not want politicians in courtrooms putting their thumb on the scales of justice. Of course we don't. The problem here is, it doesn't matter whether or not Premier Fury was the Premier when this was going on. The fact of the matter is, his government's been in place for some eight years now. The Liberals have to own what the Liberals have evaluated, pardon me, what the Liberals have done since they came into power. Yes, of course, we can all know there's a bit of a turnstile at different cabinet positions and what have you, but you cannot deflect on this front. Because Carter Churchill is not alone in being a student who does not have the the required supports in place. So, look, it should have never got to this point. And that's where the question belongs, absolutely where the buck stops, on the eighth floor. If we knew, and we did, because the Churchills were quite vocal about this issue from day one, that there was a distinct problem. So, until we get to the judicial proceedings and presenting the case in front of the Human Rights Commission, that's the end of the day. What happened at the beginning of the day? So again, the accountability is just absolutely, absolutely absent here on these critically important matters. If we don't get it right, and you're going to tell me that the system is inclusive, then you've got to ensure it is. Because if it's not, let's go back to the drawing board and do it right. Because currently we're not. So no more deflection. You cannot have it. The Premier has an important role in this province, to say the very least, and does indeed owe us taking responsibility and accountability. You cannot say you weren't in position at that time. It just doesn't matter. And before it made it to the courts or before it made it to the Human Rights Commission, something should have been done. So that story just lingers in my head because I think it's important. Anyway, you want to take it on? We can do it. Speaking of the Premier and his colleagues across Atlantic Canada, the four Atlantic Canadian Premiers are asking the federal government to delay the implications associated with the clean fuel regulations. It's a big one. So here's the basics. It kicks in on the 1st of July. What it does is require the producers or importers of gas or diesel to reduce, uh, gradually reduce, the carbon intensity of the fuels they sell. By 2030, the carbon intensity of these fuels must fall to 15% below 2016 levels. Okay, clean fuels make sense. And maybe more encouragement for hydrogen or biofuels or what have you. But it comes with a cost. This comes from the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux. The Canadian economy will take a hit. The regulations will decrease real GDP in, by 2030 up to $9 billion. Disposable income will absolutely be in question. $0.17 cents additional costs on a liter of gasoline come the 1st of July. Here's the problem. It's not just like, but it makes me think about the sugar tax. As opposed to make me pay $0.20 cents a liter for whatever sugary beverage I choose, as opposed to what they've done in other jurisdictions, is put the onus on the producers to lower the sugar content. So consequently, the producers, the businesses, they will make the move. Consequently, the consumer will indeed intake less sugar because there's less sugar in the beverage. In the refinery business, this is important, and they should be able to absorb some of this cost. And of course, they won't because the obvious. Here we go. Between 2019 and 2022, 
the margins of refineries in Atlantic Canada went from just over 10 cents per litre to 50 cents per litre. From 10 cents to 50 cents over the course of a couple of years. It's particularly difficult in Atlantic Canada. One refinery only. So much of what we consume is trucked in. So when the truckers and the trucking companies pay the additional expense, when the rates go up on Marine Atlantic, me and you, we foot those bills. The businesses, generally speaking, do not. So maybe, just maybe, if you're going to implement that clean fuel regulations, and yes, the carbon tax, the federal scheme, which the province will now be on, the delay is a fair ask. But I think, more importantly, is for the federal government to get involved in who shoulders the burden, at least some more of the burden, versus just me and you, the consumer, and whether or not the refineries and their profit matter. Look, profit's not a bad word. And I don't know who gets to be the arbiter of what is acceptable profit, because people talk about windfall tax all the time, right? But an additional 17 cents, while we're dealing with the inflationary pressures and the cost of living realities, you want to take it on? Let's do exactly that. And of course, there was a lot in the last couple of days, tons of information always flowing around and lots to talk about. So whether it be the Privacy Commissioner's report on the cyber attack, we spoke with Sean Murray, the delegate representing the office yesterday, Director of Quality Assurance at the Privacy Commissioner's office, Information Office. Didn't get much reaction other than via email and some reaction on social media. But when we have the government sitting on so much of our personal private information, including inside the healthcare delivery system, to know that up to a year prior to the hack of the system, the Meditech system, they were told that there were distinct vulnerabilities and not enough or inadequate work was done to protect us. So the cyber attack became an inevitability. So says the Privacy Commissioner with the experts they brought in to take it on. In addition, the Auditor General's report. Again, we'll speak with Minister Stulli about her department's role in the distinct shortfalls, whether it be communication between her department and health and community services, and or just the process for food inspections. In the window evaluated, there were 16% fewer inspections that were required to hit the minimum requirements, the minimum threshold. How does that work? How can that even possibly be? And it becomes a, a huge issue with potential for a risk to public safety. So we'll take that on with the minister as well, if you're so inclined to talk about it before we speak with Minister Studley. Let's do it. And I guess in some sort of relation to Road Safety Week, there's been a decision made at the Court of Appeal to overturn uh, the original court's decision to throw out evidence regarding a potential or an alleged drunk driver who on July the 7th of 2019 they say he was drunk. He turned over blood samples to the police and hospital staff. It was thrown out because the court said that the uh, accused was not read his rights and told that he had the opportunity to speak to a lawyer before whatever happened here with the testimony or his utterances and or blood samples collected. They believe that Vilnov was drunk. Crashed into this SUV. Josh Whiteway, paralyzed. His girlfriend, Suzanne Lush, suffered serious injuries. Her parents, John and Sandra Lush, were killed. Sandra's, uh, pardon me, Suzanne suffered eight broken ribs, broken bones in her sternum, wrist and foot, Josh paralyzed, and now the Court of Appeal thankfully said there was errors made by the judge, and Mr. Villeneuve, will not, Nicholas Villeneuve, will now have to stand trial for eight charges, including two counts of impaired driving causing death. So hopefully, if it can be proven in court, hopefully justice will be served. 
Because for Mr. Villeneuve to be able to walk away from that courtroom unscathed last time because of the decision made by the judge, and Josh Whiteway and others are quite pleased, as much as it's going to drag up some very traumatic images and memories, that case is going back to court. Someone asked me to make sure I brought it up, and there you go. Important matter, for sure. We're also going to get sticking with the courts and criminal justice system. Apparently, we're going to get an update today from the federal minister and provincial ministers of justice regarding an update on the Guns and Gangs Violent Action Fund. You know, for the longest while, we thought that we lived in a pretty sleepy little province where we didn't have to worry about big city things like the Hells Angels and Guns and Gangs and other cities and provinces across the country. But, of course, that's not the reality any longer in this province. We've seen an uptick in the number of guns. We've seen an uptick in the number of violent crimes, not because I say so, but because Stats Canada quite clearly says it. The Crown Prosecutor's Office says it. And so I wonder what the update will entail. But the issue regarding that level of violence, guns and gangs, or even some of the neighborhood violence that we've heard talked about many times here on this program, you know, add to it the shortage of RCMP officers. You know, for provinces across the country, on a percentage basis, we have more vacancies than any other province. Then there's things about the shortage of federal judges and what that means for having to pick and choose which cases will be heard in a timely fashion so they don't run afoul of the Jordan ruling from the Supreme Court, adding to, to some bail reform issues. So lots to talk about inside criminal justice if you want to talk about it today. I'm completely interested in it. Sticking with that for a second before I get to an Ottawa matter. We all know the implications of the things that have happened to fill up the $50 million pot to compensate victims at Mount Cashel, and we need to do it. It's the right thing to do. But it has come at a cost to people who had nothing to do with it. So whether it be you lost your place of worship or a parish hall or the Corpus Christi Food Bank had to close, the province had to pay $13 million to purchase 32 schools. And the accountability, of course, there's been... Let me start that again. What happened at Mount Cashel was pure evil personified. But what doesn't get included here enough is whether or not the Vatican should have been involved to uh, put forward the $50 million, which they absolutely should have. But as some of the notorious child abusers that were even found guilty for their heinous behavior at Mount Cashel, they were let to go to other jurisdictions and do it all over again. One notable is Ronald Lasik. He's a member of the Christian Brothers of Ireland until he died in 2020. He's one of 451 men that were, quote-unquote, credibly accused of, of abusing children in, in Illinois. He's well known <coughs> for his behavior at Mount Cashel Orphanage in the 50s. He was alleged and accused, pardon me, accused and convicted of uh, abusing at least eight boys in a violent and sexual manner, sentenced to 11 years in prison in 1999. But he did it in Illinois. He did it in Australia. We've heard these stories countless times that when members of whether it be the clergy or the Christian brothers, they do these things, they commit these crimes, they're shuffled off to another parish or another province or another country, and they do it all over again. That doesn't get factored into the conversation. I know that will really rub some people the wrong way, but that's the reality. They were allowed to do it again and do it again and do it again, and those who were in charge of managing them, managing them and holding them to account and protecting their flock, they failed countless times. So... It came at a cost for people in the province, whether it be with their churches or parish halls. And, of course, the schools. Anyway, let's take it on. Uh, a couple of quick notes in Ottawa. Regarding David Johnson, the special rapporteur. So he's now going to sit in front of the uh, House Commerce Procedure and House Affairs Committee on the 6th of June. Members of that committee want him much sooner because there's going to be more uh, testimony before the 6th of June. 
So that's going to happen. I don't know how much we're going to glean from it. And also, interestingly, the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians and the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency have not been able to get automatic access to cabinet documents. But now the Prime Minister has waived confidence so that those two federal agencies will get to pour over cabinet documents. And, of course, confidentiality in cabinet is a long-standing constitutional convention, as they refer to it, as part of the Westminster style of government. But still, no matter who you are, I think the right thing to do is for a public inquiry, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. You know the deal. That requires you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal member for St. John's East, Kitty Vitti. He's the Minister of a variety of, a variety of portfolios, children, senior, social development, status of persons with disabilities, the community sector, and, of course, the NLHC. That's John Abbott. Good morning, Minister Abbott. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and hope you and your listeners are uh, tucked away after... Uh this very cold, wet uh, spring day here. In it's been Saint a Thomas. pretty dreadful May, but that's pretty status quo for this neck of the woods. <laughs> yes. So where are we? So I believe it's National Accessibility Week. Yes, uh, that's the main reason I was calling in this morning. Uh, so starting on Sunday, uh, it's National Accessibility Week uh, across the province, across the country. And just wanted to highlight some of the things uh, our province and the government are doing to promote accessibility uh, here uh, in uh, both on the island and in Labrador. So we have several funding programs uh, that we uh, have in place. Uh, the new one this year is a new summer camp inclusion grant. So for kids uh, with a disability who are going off to summer camp, now we're going to provide uh, financial support so that they can have a support worker with them. That's something new. And the, uh, uh, the disability community had uh, advocated for uh, for that kind of approach and we're glad to uh, announce and launch that uh, this year. So some of the grants inside inclusion grant funding, I know it's uh, 25000 for not-for-profit community-based organizations. It's also $5,000 in another pot for the same type of groups. But one thing, and especially when you mention that camp, it also says very distinctly on the Cardinal website that providing things like American Sign Language, captioning or listening devices, when American Sign Language is very much in the news. So it might be in the K-12 system, which is not your ballywick, but it does indeed come down to persons with disabilities. The atrocious treatment of Carter Churchill and other students in the, in the province that need ASL and ASL-qualified teachers is woefully lacking. Even though we've established a, a school, or pardon me, a class for them at East Point Elementary, we still don't have the required trained teachers. So it might not be in education, but it certainly is inside your portfolio. Talk about American Sign Language and the shortage of those who are able to provide, whether it be as translators and or teachers or anywhere else where they're needed. Well, I think you know, you are speaking to a, a challenge that we, we all have, all sectors, so that's why we thought it was important uh, that we step forward to make sure that the kids uh, going to camp uh, are supported. That's why we have a vehicle accessibility grants for those who uh, now can drive, but they need to get their vehicles adapted. So we're reaching out right across the, the spectrum here in the province uh, to do that. We have also have our new Accessibility Standards Advisory Board, and they will be going out shortly uh, looking for input uh, as we develop our first accessibility standard for customer service. So again, a lot is happening. We know there's a lot more to be done, but uh, working with the advocacy uh, community and the disability community different uh, organizations i think we're uh, we're on a, a on a good path uh, to move forward here in the province even when we try to organize time with 
different organizations or advocacy groups regarding hard of hearing or deaf sometimes are waiting weeks on end before they can get a translator to be involved. So that speaks to me with a dis distinct shortage. What is actually happening to provide more services for ASL? Because I think that has a wide-reaching impact, not only in the school system, but in the deaf and hard of hearing community, which is absolutely inside persons with disabilities. What's happening? Yeah, so we're, through uh, my department, uh, Department of Education, Department of Health, uh, certainly engaged uh, with the disability community and the, the organizations, whether it's uh, the Association for the Deaf, uh, Hard of Hearing, uh, all of those communities. Um, we're working to meet their needs. Uh, you, you pointed to the capacity. Part of that capacity is just finding uh, and trained individuals. I know my niece, for instance, uh, works with the Montreal uh, Oral School, uh, but she was trained several years to, to be able to work with, uh, with kids with uh, hearing impairment. So it's, uh, it takes a good effort on all of our parts to, to make, uh, address those gaps, and that's certainly what the, the government is committed to, to doing. There's also uh, pots of money for accessible vehicle funding, but more specifically, I know this is a municipal issue, but of course it's inside the city and the community that you represent regarding things like GoBus. So it's been contracted out to a third party and administered by, I guess, Metrobus in some form or fashion, but they've got a problem, whether it be with the booking system and the shortage of drivers. Do you have an update on that front? Because that's absolutely inside of your constituency. Well, no, thanks, uh, Patty, for that. And uh, I've had uh, you know different conversations uh, with the city and city councillors on this. The it's a it's a very good service. Uh, it's integrated with the, with the Metrobus, which is really what you want to see. That all these uh, basic services are now streamlined. The challenge uh, they have that I've been told, and I, is that there is li literally a shortage of bus drivers that are doing everything they can to, to get those in place. And in the meantime, uh, they've put in a, a basically a reservation system to ensure that anyone and everyone who needs a ride will, will get that. It's just now it's going to be a, a matter of timing and getting a booking uh, in place. I think they've come up with a, a good solution while they're waiting to get more uh, drivers in place. I know the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation administers the home modification program, but is it only for people living in NLHC housing, or is it for all low or medium income uh, earners in the province who need to modify their home? It would. It's really open to all low income families, and uh, we're continuing to invest uh, in in both uh, existing housing uh, through our modification and home repair programs. And we've also, in terms of now our new construction, which we're uh, starting in Pleasantville uh, shortly, uh, what we're doing up in Happy Valley Goose Bay and other uh, towns across the province, is to make sure that any of our new units uh, will First, will be all universally designed, and secondly, we will have a significant proportion of those units that will be fully accessible. So that's, uh, again, part of our policy going forward, that uh, we meet the needs of uh, both uh, population that uh, has a, a large percentage of persons with physical disabilities uh, and others, and but more importantly, I guess, or re realistically, is as our population is aging, uh, older folks need and want uh, more accessible uh, units at their disposal as well. So we're uh, basically meeting a, a, a dual demand here uh, that uh, will be here forever, really, for for uh, the programs we're, we're delivering, both at the Housing Corporation and uh, elsewhere uh, in government. At the same time, uh, we're doing an assessment of all our government buildings for their degree of accessibility and uh, where there's gaps there that we then will put in a plan to to meet those uh, deficiencies 
and we've also got a project here called Supportive Decision Making, uh, so we will help uh, individuals, those particularly with intellectual uh, disabilities, uh, that we can support them in their decision making so that they can be independent as long as, as possible and then look at all our other legislation that would need to be amended to support that so we'd have, again, a more inclusive society uh, going forward. So there's a lot of activity going on, and we just wanted to bring that to the attention of uh, your listeners here this morning. Yes, up to 20% of the population would require some sort of supports in this front. Uh, This is a funding question. I'm not entirely sure what kind of federal matching dollars or support comes from the federal government, but we do know that inside the world, say, for instance, of infrastructure, the money, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is intended to flow to the NGOs, so the non-governmental organizations, as opposed to municipalities to talk about or to deal with infrastructure issues. Does every dollar out the door go to NGOs? Because without support from the government, many of these advocacy groups have to close up shop. So tell us how the funding is administered. Does it go to any municipalities or strictly to the NGOs? Uh, Now, so when you look at provincial funding, we will support uh, both NGOs and municipal governments, indigenous governments and organizations to support any disability accessibility improvements where where we can, whether it's my department or municipal provincial affairs or transportation infrastructure. So, uh, and this will become a more significant uh, element of the criteria as we go forward in any of our funding. And the federal government would be somewhat similar in, in that regard. So there's you know, to your point, I think there is a hodgepodge of funding and sources of funding. What I think is important, what I've been advocating for as minister, is to make sure that we put a lens on uh, the funding and the application criteria that supports uh, persons with disabilities and that we make sure that when we're putting in infrastructure, whether it's a, a park, a trail, or a building or a service that it uh, meets uh, current accessibility requirements. And that's, uh, I think that's broadly accepted. Uh, we just got to be more diligent in our, in our planning going forward. Last one. So when we talk about immigration, you know, there's a lot, large focus on Ukrainians, some 2,800 have come. None are living in social housing. I'll put that out there. But I would imagine every government department can play a role here in identifying gaps or shortages of workers. We talked about GoBus. Is there a program or a process where you identify newcomers and think that, well, inside my portfolio, I need X, Y, and Z, including potentially bus drivers for GoBus? Is there any sort of program or process where you say, okay, let's approach the ANC. Let's go right to the immigrants themselves and say, here's a job opportunity, here's the training dollars or the training dollar support, and we put you in a job that we absolutely need to fill today. Does any of that happen? So the Department of uh, Immigration, Population Growth and Skills uh, under Minister Byrne are working direct on that with the uh, ANC and other community agencies to make sure that we can match the skill set of the Ukrainians and any other newcomers uh, to the to the job market and their job fairs and, and the like. Uh, government departments have been asked and challenged uh, to, to do likewise. So that work is uh, underway, and the more we can get out to the public generally and to employers uh, that there is a, a, a skill set that has come to the province that we can now uh, uh, support uh, them. That's great. And Minister Byrne announced just the other day uh, some new supports for employers and for landlords and others to uh, accommodate <coughs> individuals now uh, here in the province. So we're, we think we're, again, on the on the right path uh, to make sure they're, they're fully ingra- integrated and supported uh, uh, right across the province. Appreciate the time, Minister. Anything else before we go? 
No, I really appreciate that. And just ask people to, you know, keep their minds and uh, ears open to uh, all the activities that will be going on next week. And uh, uh, certainly encourage people to reach into our department with any thoughts they have and to respond to uh, the various uh, grant application programs we have uh, across uh, the spectrum here uh, going forward. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. It's Minister John Abbott, Minister of Children, Senior Social Development, of course, status of person with disabilities, community sector, and importantly for many, the NLHC. Let's take a break. When we go back, sugar tax. Okay, don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Uh, let's go. Line number two. Morning, Agnes. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Um, I was at the supermarket yesterday, and I was purchasing uh, vegetable juice, uh-huh. and they're char- they were charging me the sugar tax on it. And this is the second time. Can I mention the name of the supermarket? Well, I don't know if, if the supermarket has more to the distributor who p- does that type of work with application of taxes, but if you want to say the store, it is what it is. It's taxes, pretty public stuff. Okay, it was Sobeys. Okay. Now, I normally shop at Coleman's, where I buy these both these juices pretty much every week, cranberry juice or vegetable juice. They never charge it. When I uh, And this is the second encounter I've had at Sobeys. The first time they took it off, which was about, say, three or four months ago, and yesterday they refused to take it off. Um, so I did my own research yesterday afternoon, and it clearly shows there's absolutely no added sugar to vet- vegetable juice or cranberry juice. There's no added sugar. But to the blended juices, there is. So why these are charging it and Coleman's is not, you know, and now I call the tax administration and, well, uh, this is what they said because it showed in the contents there is a natural sugar in it. They're adding additional charge for the sugar, and they can't do that because there's natural sugar in everything. Well, I mean, there's other products with sugar in it, beverages with sugar that are not taxed, like milk. So I've never made heads or tails of this. And it, I mean, it just stands to your point is a good one. You can go to one shop, buy the exact same product, buy the exact same manufacturer, not pay the sugar tax, go to another shop, buy the exact same product, and there's a sugar tax on it. This has been convoluted from day one. That's right. And uh, uh, I called them back yesterday afternoon after I went in and uh, to Google and uh, researched these two products. And uh, they just said, well, we'll look into it. Uh, and they didn't even say thank you for providing us with that information. But <laughs> if it's not added to the product, you shouldn't. And that was what the government said when this tax came out. If it's, there's no added sugar, there's no charge. There shouldn't be. Absolutely so, right. And why Sobeys is charging it and turning around and giving people this, I'm sure. And they said at the tax administration that they get a lot of calls from people complaining about this. But obviously they're not doing much about it. If one supermarket is not charging it and some another one is, why is that? There should be a list of products that have added sugar. 
Uh, absolutely. And that should have been incumbent on the government right from the get-go to give us a concise list as opposed to telling me some vagaries what is going to be taxed and some vagaries what is going to be exempt because it's just not working the way it's even intended to work. And I think they no. should have started with the manufacturer, to be honest with you. Oh, well, I refused yesterday to buy it because I, I you know, I just... Now, be, before they took it off the first time, but they didn't take it off yesterday, and I refused to buy the product. I wonder, Agnes, how many people don't even look or pay enough attention when they're getting checked out at the till as to whether or not there's a tax applied. Now, people are pinching their pennies, rightfully so, and understandably so, but you know full well that tons of folks have paid that tax and never questioned it one way or the other. Well, I question everything if I'm <laughs> because I check my receipt before I leave the store, and if something's wrong, that then I take it up with them. Fair enough, like you would. So, uh, you know, I'm. Uh, it would be interesting to note this morning how many callers you would get that have, you know, are just letting this slide by where they really shouldn't because if they go on and research the item on Google, all you got to do is bring it up there on your laptop and uh, you get all the information you want. Absolutely. We're happy to talk about it and follow up with the department because, remember, they also said that they expect to bring in some $9 million. And in the debate on the floor of the House of Assembly, they said the $9 million would be used to create new programs. But, of course, that didn't happen either. The money's going to go to... Uh, for instance, I, I believe there's a breast uh, breastfeeding campaign, and then there's Kids Eat Smart, things that are already in existence. So, again, it, they thought it sounded like a really good idea to rethink your drink, but it hasn't been applied fairly or equitably across the board, and that just means that it currently does not work. I'll follow up, but I'm glad you called this morning, Agnes. Okay, thank you, Patty, for your time. My pleasure. You take good care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number one. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? I'm fine. Doing good. Good. Uh, there, we have, uh, I live on the West Coast, and uh, east of Marble Mountain, there's a roadside spring there. And people have been drinking that water for years and years and years, okay? Okay. So I called in yesterday to uh, Environmental and asked them if that water has ever been tested. And she said no. Uh, we don't test roadside springs, and we strongly suggest people don't drink it. So I said, well, why doesn't the government put a sign there saying, drink at your own risk? And she came back with the answer, uh, well, government is not liable. We don't want to be liable. Well, I said, what's that got to do with putting a sign they're saying, uh, drink at your own risk. And she said, well, what happens if the sign blows away? I mean, road signs don't blow away, so put a sign here that won't blow away, you know? Yeah, fair enough. But let me say this. Do you think that most people, knowing that it's not a regulated water supply, it's just a flowing creek or a river or stream or spout, that all of those things come at your own risk? Right? Because if it's not something that the government has anything to do with, then I, just for me, I would think that I'm proceeding at my own risk based on the knowledge that I'm just trying to get spring water. But in this day and age, though, like with with all the cancers on the go and the government trying to keep uh, hospitalization visits down and all that, don't you think, <clears throat> excuse me, the government would be interested in, you know, stopping people from drinking this stuff? So would it stop people, do you think, if they simply said uh, drink at your own risk? Or give people, I guess, time to well, consider okay. it? Well, maybe, maybe the sign could say, like, this water 
is never tested or or it's not good for consumption you know like but people have been drinking it for years and 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 uh Sometimes I wonder if it's not better than our own water that we're drinking coming out of our tap. Well, there's a, a spring water uh, on the uh, Pitts Memorial Drive that every single time I drive in or out, there's someone with their water container out getting some of that spring water, and I guarantee you that's never been tested either. Yeah, and there's one at, uh, uh, well, I'm well up in age, there's one at uh, uh, Goodyear's Cove there. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. No, I'm not. But anyway, that one's been running and running and running there for ever since I was a young boy and people have been drinking that, you know, like it, but anyway, uh, why wouldn't they test it though? Like if I took a bottle down and said, test this water, why wouldn't they do that? That's what would be the big deal of testing a bottle of that water? I don't know but you know, I guess the same question would be, why would government test things that government has nothing to do with on this case, just some running water, generally speaking, running water, is, for the most part, safe to drink. Like when we're in Alberta, that was one of the things we were told all the time. Never drink standing water, whether it be from a pond or what have you, for the fear of beaver fever, which is really debilitating. Right. Uh, so why they wouldn't test it, I don't know. I don't know what kind of cost is associated with it. I think I kind of understand the liability issue because let's say it comes back that there are some potential concerns with whatever contaminants or another may be present in that water, then what? So I guess then they're responsible for monitoring and uh, enforcing people staying away from it. So I guess they maybe have some sort of point regarding liability, but there's a way to get uh, water privately tested too, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, like if I took, say I took a bottle of that water into uh, uh, the government uh, environmental place and didn't tell them it was from there. Would they test it? I mean, it don't. It just don't make sense that they wouldn't test a bottle of that water. You Fair know? enough. I, I can't recall now if I'm living off a well, well water, and need to get it tested. Do I pay for that test, or does the government pay for that test? And I know people go to the ends of the earth to do whatever they got to do to try to clean the water up before it gets to the government. But that testing is done. I'm going to reach out to one of my real estate buddies because uh, they'll know the answer to that question. That Who's responsible for paying for that test? Hmm. Let me see what I can figure out, Bill. Appreciate the time, sir. You're welcome. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk breaking barriers. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the program. Good on the listeners for giving me the information that I was lacking. So if you're around this neck of the woods on the Avalon Peninsula, you can actually get water tested for free at the Miller Center down on Forest Road. They'll actually give you the kits, the bottle kits, to provide water samples. I've also been told that if you bring a sample to your municipality, the town or the city, the testing will be done at no cost to you. Apparently, the provincial government on the West Coast, Rod says that, let me bring it up here. Rod says that he has a friend of his that drinks that water near Marble that Bill's talking about. They told me occasionally they bring a sample to the Department of Health who will check the water. Apparently, that's uh, come across as being very, very clean and healthy. Same for the spring on Pitts Memorial Drive. Apparently, the results say it's amongst the cleanest springs that they've tested in the province or in Atlantic Canada. So, Miller Center, the DMV, or the town that you live in, apparently, they'll do the testing for you at no cost. Excellent. Thanks for the info. All right, let's go. And, of course, I don't need testing. I turn on the tap, and I'm drinking some of the cleanest, uh, tastiest water out there from Windsor Lake, of course. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the executive director of the Newfoundland and Labrador Queer Research Initiative. That's Sarah Worthman. Good morning, Sarah. You're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. How's it going? Not too bad today. Thank you. How about you? Good, good. I'm uh, looking forward to chatting you. Looking forward to chatting with you today. Yeah, me too. So I actually heard you speak with one of my colleagues at another outlet. So I know a little bit about it. But let's set the stage for our listeners who maybe didn't hear that interview. So. Apparently, that we don't really have a well-documented archive of queer history here in this province. So inside, what's the starting point for your work, and why are we doing it? So we were actually, embarrassingly, the only province to not have a queer history archive. And of course, when I say queer history here, I'm using it as like an umbrella term. So it means everything related to 2S LGBTQ plus history uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, and so we started with a Facebook post <laughs> that I made in, in a couple of heritage groups. And next thing you know, uh, we've got a full team of volunteers, uh, an entire board now, and uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, uh, a full working archive online. So when we talk about queer history, I mean, is it the the progress over the decades to get to where we are today with same-sex marriage and some more afforded rights to people of that of your community or what exactly is queer history so our our policy for what is included in our archive is really anyone from our history who just openly existed as themselves uh we really believe that being true to your sexuality or your gender identity at a time when there was so much homophobia and transphobia, uh, that is, you know, bravery in itself and it deserves to be honored. So we've got kind of a wide range of characters who might not have been like crucial to the, the human rights movement in the province, but still uh, have such cool contributions uh, to our culture in Newfoundland and Labrador and uh, and to our, our shared kind of heritage. The issue regarding homophobia or transphobia, which is really a big part of the news today, which is really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I mean, two steps forward, one step back kind of thoughts going on these days. So through our history, some people who were really quite open about their sexuality, but because it came with talent and admiration from different corners, never really translated maybe to others who were afraid to come out of the closet, as they say. Like, for instance, Tommy Sexton comes to mind. Tommy made no bones about it, but that didn't necessarily <laughs> uh, seep into the minds of others who were worried about how family would react how the people in the society would react so how do you capture that in history and do the juxtaposition because it's so different for different ones based on you know i'll call it courage even though that's probably the wrong word but if you had social status it was easier as opposed to if you didn't yeah yeah and so we use bravery very broadly here you know even uh for example um there's a couple who uh live together and are buried together in saint john's and while they weren't like open in in the sense of everyone knew they were together um they still made that kind of moment of of being buried together and and kind of honoring their relationship for for the rest of well uh their afterlife and so you know that's kind of our, our point here. And I think as well, we want to work with kind of older community members to document their experience not being out and, and, and the journey that it came and how human rights has transformed their ability to be comfortable. And, and yeah, but also at the same time, the archive is very much about challenging a lot of the narratives we see around homophobia and transphobia that's sort of resurfacing today, right? Like you often get the the idea that 
it's a, a nonsensical idea that there's an indoctrination happening in the schools or that it's a choice to be, uh, you know, to be queer or to be a member of the community. And the reality is uh, we can look to history to show, no, people have, uh, you know, been queer and expressed themselves uh, kind of authentically for all of Newfoundland's history and, and Labrador's history for the most part. Uh, and so that whole argument just goes out the window because how do you explain that if they weren't getting inclusive education in the schools, for example? <laughs> you know? Well, because politicians and some of their core supporters have run out of ideas. And so what the easy <laughs> one is, and the low-hanging fruit, as they say, is culture wars. And it's easy mm-hmm. to engage in. It's emotional. It riles people up. It brings them into the fold and keeps them in the fold. So I think we're being betrayed inside the cultural war argument that people are mm-hmm. making. Most of it based in emotion versus reality. A lot of it based mm-hmm. in nonsense. But it is dragging us all down, regardless of what community you're a member of. And I don't know if that's the right way mm-hmm. to put it either. But yeah. what, 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 what are we trying to achieve with the culture wars, I think? And I, that's not something I'm putting to you. I'll just put that out there <laughs> as a broad concept. So mm-hmm. when this work is done and you have created a comprehensive archive, then mm-hmm. what? What do you want people to do with it? Whether it be to access, uh, to understand, or how do you think people are going to interact with whatever work you're able to compile? So this archive is thankfully a living process. So it's actually already live. You can go to nlqueerarchive.com uh, and actually view it. We've got 200 plus items on there. Um, and so the goal is really to let people go through on their own pace and, and learn about this history. Every single collection that we have featured uh, has a, a very extensive description so people can learn and then they can go through and actually look at the pictures, read some of the letters. Uh, and so, you know, you talk about kind of these culture war components and it's so much easier to depict people as these kind of monsters or villainous if you don't know them. And that's why we really want the archive to be for everyone. Because if you know our history of our community, uh, you, you know, a lot of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians grew up with Tommy Sexton, for example. Um, if you see Tommy Sexton behind the scenes and you know how he, he, he struggled with AIDS and there's some beautiful moments as well where you can actually see some of his uh, partners throughout his life. And like, and it, they're just quite intimate and beautiful. And so you can see that and you can witness queer love and expression and maybe realize, okay, this whole thing that people are trying to um, depict as, as the enemy is uh, is kind of a bit of a farce. <laughs> well, look, I say it, it's just part of the culture war because if we're not mad, apparently we're not content. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if you are a straight listener, you'll know that not everybody who's also straight in your community is the same. Same thing if you have whatever your sexuality is or your sexual identity, to pretend that everyone inside that group is exactly the same with the same lifestyle, the same goals and wants and needs, then we're just kidding ourselves. We've got ourselves lumped into these silos where there's no distinction on individuals. There's no distinction on your goals in life. There's no distinction on your role in the community. You're all apparently the same, just apparently like every gay, or pardon me, every straight white male, we're all the same. We're not. Nobody is. That doesn't stand the test of time or the smell test for any group in any country anywhere in this world. So we just got to start picking apart and putting faces to stories, not just mm-hmm. the community is the community and there's no difference within. 
Yeah, and that that's really what we're trying to do. You know, each collection has a story. And they're they are as you say, they're very different. You know, Charles Danielle, um, who if you know Octagon Pond, that's why it's named Octagon Pond, because he had a castle out there. But he was like this eccentric kind of businessman, um, who who was uh quite feisty. Um and then you kinda contradict him with uh with stories like uh the uh, Chan, uh, which is the Canadian Homophile Association of Newfoundland, um, who were, you know, a little bit more kind of tight-knit and, and they wanted it to stay more so in the community and they weren't per se seeking out um, a lot of these human rights uh, things as uh, some of the later uh, additions would. Uh, and so, you know, in each item that you look at, there is a person behind it. Uh, and I think we need to do, and this is more broadly, but to challenge some of this hate going around, I think we need to do what Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, you know, do best uh, and talk to our neighbors and get to know each other and look at our history and, and realize that, you know, there's such a mosaic of, of individuals who, uh, who exist in, in this province. And it's a really beautiful thing that, that we should celebrate. Where do I see the research you've done already? I, saw, so I know you, you mentioned go- it, but... Yeah, so you go to nlqueerarchive.com. Appreciate the time this morning, Sarah. Stay in touch. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, there you go. And uh, again, it really is a lot of people have just run out of ideas. And so the easy one is to pick on differences in society and pretending that this hasn't been the case in modern society for not decades, but for centuries. But now, all of a sudden, because once again, to come up with new ideas to make life better for the general populace is hard to come by. And when you don't have an idea, you just try to point out that someone is different than the other. And consequently, the rage takes over and it just tries to fill up the tent with people who are like minded, as opposed to think that maybe just some better policies to make my life easier, better, more affordable. No, nope. culture war. Happy to talk about that, too, if you're into it. Uh, appreciate your patience, Nancy Reed. She's the executive director at the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, talking about the uh, Pardon me, a scholarship to have available during Accessibility Week and the Breaking Barriers campaign. They were going to talk about Roadside Springs again. And my buddy, Coach Jerry Williams with the Newfoundland Rogues, they play the last regular season games with the visitors, the Lebanon Leprechauns, this weekend. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the executive director of CODNL. That's the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. That's Nancy Reed. Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hope things are going well today. Doing okay. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Good. Um, Patty, always great to come online. Uh, but just today, I really wanted to speak a little bit about Accessibility Week, National Accessibility Week, and some of the things that we're realizing in this province that really align with the celebration of accessibility. Um, I did uh, hear a little of uh, Minister Abbott's uh, discussion with you earlier today, and he certainly pointed to a number of things. And it really, uh, I guess, gave me a reason to call in today and uh, give a little bit more information from the community lens uh, with, the, with a similar message, I guess. Um, we certainly at the coalition, as with many of our organizations, recognize there are a long way, there's a long way to go to really enable full access for all people with disabilities. But I'd like to celebrate today that there are some things happening and there are opportunities and resources available for people that sometimes folks aren't aware of and really point people to, to that you know to, to that information. Um, so if I could, I'd like to 
remind folks, um, right now at the coalition, we have a uh, media campaign running. We're actually in week three of that campaign. And some listeners may have seen ads on television. Uh, right now we're featuring Mary Walsh, and most of us know Mary Walsh in this province, and she's been amazing uh, in this campaign. And, uh, and she identifies herself as being a person, uh, a person with disabilities, mm-hmm. and, uh, and tells her story in that campaign. As well, we're featuring a number of individual, uh, individuals from the province. Right now, Brandon Snow, um, a recent medical school graduate who also identifies with disability, and, uh, and his story is featured in the campaign. But the purpose of the campaign is to really point people toward, to get attention, and then point people toward opportunities. And so if people go to breakingbarriersnl.ca, there are a bunch of resources there that can really help essentially break barriers for persons with disabilities. When Minister Abbott spoke this morning, he spoke about a number of things our provincial government is doing, accessibility funding opportunities and that type of thing. And some of the resources that he mentioned are also included. Well, I'm going to say pretty well all of the resources that he mentioned are included on Breaking Barriers NL, as well as a bunch of other things from the community lens. So if people have barriers or experiencing barriers, wondering about opportunities um, with respect to a particular type of disability, uh, there are resources under the resources page with Breaking Barriers uh, that will direct people to the various organizations in our province that are specific to various types of disability. And I'm not going to go into them particularly, uh, but certainly they're all there included in that space. And I'll say that if we've missed anybody, please let us know uh, from an organization perspective. But we think we're doing a pretty good job of including most groups. We certainly recognize that this is a living document. If there are resources that we've missed, we want to hear about that. We really want to make this it's something that is available to the greatest number of people. And in saying that, uh, the site is fully accessible for persons who use screen readers. A person might have vision loss or other readings that they can't navigate uh, a, t- a typical website. So the uh, website itself should be fully accessible to, uh, you know, to all types of disabilities. Uh, the videos that we've included, we've actually included them with captioning, as well as having the option to watch them um, with American Sign Language uh, interpretation included. So there's a lot of information there, and I really thank you, Patty, for the opportunity to share that. Um, sometimes it's difficult to know where to find the resources, and we hope that Breaking Barriers and L.ca will really be a tool that people can use help find the resources and spaces that they So need. what have we learned so far about people's personal stories where there's gaps that need to be filled or what give us some personal stories that you can share now so that people know exactly what we're talking about. Sure. Um, the the personal stories that we're sharing come directly from uh, a piece of research that we did a few months ago. So in that um, the, the research stated that many of the barriers that persons experience are non visible barriers. So um, a person who is using a wheelchair, for instance, it's easy to see that they're not going to get up over that set of stairs. But a person who has, and I'm going to point to Brandon's story because he's highlighted right now, um, he's an individual with vision loss, and uh, he he, um, had been given opportunities through use of technology and through personal supports, uh, meaning people and family, that he was determined that his uh, vision loss was not going to set him back and he was going to become a teacher or a doctor rather. And so currently he just finished his medical school. Um, some of the tools that he uses to do things are actually tools that are used by other uh, physicians 
but he used them a little differently to create equity for him and his basis. Um, so there were non he has a non-visible disability and he is not it's not easily seen by others. You wouldn't know that uh, that he has these barriers, but the technology that he's been able to acquire to use has removed those barriers for him and now he can practice as a as a as a medical doctor in our community. Um, others, uh, some of the the um, the identifiers were um, barriers to trans transportation. I'm going to say that it's still a major barrier for many people in our province. Transportation is not something we've found an answer to um, in, in its entirety. There are certainly some things being done. And again, Minister spoke to uh, the accessible vehicle funding piece. And we, you know, we see people breaking barriers in those spaces. But there's still a lot of work to be done in that area. Kenny, I don't know if I answered your question. I'm sorry. I think so. You know, I mean, if there's a personal story where there was a, a gap that was overcome and someone was able to be become a medical doctor, I'm just looking for, you know, like I've tried many times with different subject matter. High-level policy is absolutely part of the conversation. It has to be. Sometimes I think it makes more sense to folks, and this is not aimed at you or anybody, mm -hmm. when we hear a very personal story about what was needed to be overcome, the hurdles people faced, what they achieved or what they did not because of said hurdles or obstacles, then I think it paints a clearer picture because we mm -hmm. can talk about the home inclusion program or pardon me, the home modification program and accessible, accessible vehicles and all those types of things. But when someone says, here's what it means to me, then yep. we start to understand it a little clearer, I think. For sure. Um, again, I don't know if it really points to your, your, your question, but... I'm reminded of Stephanie, uh, who is another one of the participants in this, um, uh, in the campaign. And if you go to Breaking Barriers, you can see her story. Uh, hers has not hit TV yet. That's going to happen in the fall. But um, she's an individual who, like many young people in our province, uh, was bullied. And uh, she found herself, as a person with a visible disability, um, you know, separated from her peers in a lot of ways. And she was bullied. Um, she found uh, opportunities. Uh, through the Jane Way, she uh, said that she was uh, working with a social worker there. And that social worker helped her uh, with coping skills and helped her overcome some of her anxiety and her depression and, uh, and, and helped her accept herself. And doing that, she was able to be more confident and reach out and, uh, you know, acquired a peer group. Um, she was a part of Easter Seals, and uh, through some of their sports programs, she became a Team Canada uh, player uh, through Easter Seals, and um, and it's been doing really well. And her story really, um, I guess, created in her an opportunity. Uh, and now she's in the school of social work at Mon. So she was somebody who had been very uh, segregated and uh, and removed from so many things. But again, she was able to access supports in the community through the social worker, help her uh, break barriers of her own, find these supports, and then use that to enable her to get to where she wanted to be. And uh, she's just an amazing young woman, very happy uh, and confident, and, uh, and really feeling good about where she is, and rightfully so. Uh, and that's only been possible because uh, she was able to use the resources that are actually out there. I encourage people to really try. I know it's not the story of everybody. The stories that we're highlighting are individual stories. And I know that's not everybody's experience. But we believe that there are resources, there are opportunities for people to be able to, to access them. 
Anything else quickly before I have to get to the break? I think there's a mention of a scholarship on my subject Thanks. line. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you, Patty. Uh, we do at the coalition every year have a scholarship. This is supported by Sonova's Energy, and uh, we're really hoping that people with disabilities will apply. Um, the application is available on codnl.ca. It's near the end of the page. But basically, to be eligible, you must be a student graduating grade 12 this year and going to a post-secondary school in September. You must also be and self-identify as being a person with a disability. And uh, you must be entering a field that is generally in some way related uh, to the oil and gas sector. So that could be anything from business, office administration, earth science, uh, technology or engineering, um, health and occupation, you know, technical trades, all types of things, many types of things, but in some way applicable to the oil and gas sector. Um, so, again, we encourage people to apply. The deadline is uh, Friday, June the 2nd. So it's just one week, um, but there's an application process on our site, codnl.ca, and we really want people to apply. We don't usually get a huge number of applications. So if you think, you know, you're not going to cheat a chance, please send in your application. We'd love to hear from you. Appreciate the time, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, it's Nancy Reed. She's the Executive Director at the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. Let's take a break. When we come back, Newfoundland Rogues coach Jerry Williams is in the queue. Then Lindy wants to talk about Roadside Springs. Then the O to Newfoundland. There's, I think there's some sort of rally going to be uh, taking place during convocation ceremonies outside, not to interrupt the proceedings, but a group of people who think that it was a mistake to remove the oath from the one convocations. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six and say good morning to the uh, head coach of the Newfoundland Rogues in the Basketball League. That's Jerry Williams. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you, man? Doing okay, coach. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Just gearing up for tonight's game. Um, thanks for having me on again. Happy to do it. So 38 games into your 40-game regular season. The Rogues are 21-17. and 17. I think you're winners of your last five. You've scored a ton of points this year, just short of 4,000 points, but have also given up just short of 3,600 points. How do you characterize 21-17? and 17? Oh, Well, just like you said, we gave up 3,600 points. <laughs> that, that tells it all in a nutshell right there. That's, um, that's a lot of points to give up on defense. And, you know, it's one of those things I've tried to get the guys to focus on the whole year is, you know, I know we could score. Like, that's something that we, we have the talent to do, to score the ball with the best of them. But we have to come up and, you know, get stops as well. And, you know, they're, they're getting into it. Like you said, we won our last five games in a row. And, you know, they're, they're playing great defense. We're setting goals. We don't want guys to get over a certain amount of points, and they, they're reaching those goals. So we're doing pretty good right now, man. It's happening at the very right time because we're headed into the playoffs. So. Yeah, you got the guys that can put the points up, but what's the key on defense? Because it's not just whether it be you run the box in one or it's a full court press. A lot of it comes down to uh, rebounds and what have you. Where's your distinct shortcoming on defense that's given up the 3,600? Well, for me, I think, well, it's not that I think, it's I know it's second chance points. You know, we do everything to get these guys to miss a shot and then we forget to box out or, you know, Get, um, don't go for a loose ball really hard, and the other team gets it, and they get they getting two and three shots at the rim at one time. So that's gonna that's gonna hurt you, man. When when you do so well on defense and get them to miss, and then you just don't box out and let them come back and get on um, ball again and get another opportunity after another opportunity to score, it's gonna end up hurting you because these guys are professional players. They're not gonna just continue to miss shot after shot. Forcing bad shots is basically about athleticism. Rebounds is as much about technique as as it is about being a good athlete. Right, and and rebounding is simple. If you if you put your body on somebody and box somebody out, you could be six foot six and they could be six ten. If you box them out, 
the chances are you have a chance of getting the ball. But if you're trying to out jump a six foot ten, seven foot guy and you're six foot seven, it's not going to work. It's not going to go in your favor a lot of the times. Trust me. So we'll talk about technique for getting you know eliminating second chance points. But are you test driving anything in particular against the Leprechauns this weekend to get ready for the playoffs because it's a different beast altogether. Yeah, well, it, you don't want to throw everything out there now because this is a real league and you, you are getting scouted by other teams. They're watching our games. Um, you can tell who's watching the game after the game um, when you go on the site and see. So you don't want to throw everything out that you have for the playoffs. Um, we're doing some things. We're testing some plays out and things of that nature. But we have a whole bag of things that we're going to throw at the playoffs that we're not going to use um, in these next two games. We're just going to try to get through these games the best we can with what we've been doing the last ten games. And obviously it's been working, so we're going to do that. But, yes, to answer your question, we have a bag of stuff that we, we we're going to bring out for the playoffs. Coach, how's the playoff structure work in the Basketball League? Because you guys are in the Southeast Conference, which is an interesting place to plop the Newfoundland Rogues. So there's the Central, Lower, Midwest, I think, Northeast, Upper Midwest, and the West. So what's the playoff structure look like? How does it break down to how you match up? And how many teams make the playoffs? Well, for us in our region, it's four teams that will make the playoffs. So the number one team plays the number four team, and number two team plays okay. the number three team. That's one game. It's one game elimination knockoff. So whoever wins those those games will play each other in a series of the best two out of three series, right? So then that means you're your regional champion. So whoever wins the region, then that's when they put you on to another region or, you know, they then they start separating the West, the Midwest, the upper Midwest, and the East and things of that nature. So for us, if we go, we're going to look like we're playing Raleigh, um, North Carolina, the Firebirds. So that's what it looks like as of right now today. But anything can happen because a, a top four team lost to a t number six team last night. So anything can happen. That's a great thing about this league. Like you have to show up to play every game. Um, or you will lose a game. So, but with that being said, if we go and take care of business, get rid of these these two games here, go to the playoffs, win the region, we may have a chance to come back here for a playoff um, series. So, which is something that we really, really want for the island to come back so they can see us playing the playoffs. Yeah, your division was a bit of the haves and the have-nots. The top four were pretty close to each other. The bottom four were well out. I mean, compare Central Florida to Georgia or Raleigh or yourselves or the Buccaneers. There was a big, distinct. Uh, have and have nots. Does that make it difficult for you to have a team that's consistent? Because if you go into Central Florida, you kind of got in the back of your mind. Here comes wind. You go into Georgia, different set of circumstances. How does that bleed into consistency? Well, the thing is, that's in every league, every level, sure. even in the NBA. Like you have teams that's really, really good, and you have some teams that's really, really bad. <laughs> so you know, there um, it happens all over. It's just not you know just this league. It, it happens everywhere. You're gonna have some top teams, and then you're gonna have some teams that's not that good. But the thing is, you still have to show up and play the game of basketball because just like last night, the number four team lost to the number sixteen. I think the number six or seven to Fayetteville uh, last night. And I know they went into the game thinking, like, this team is not ranked. They can't make the playoffs, blah, blah, blah. And then you end up losing. So anything can happen, man. No matter the ranking, you still got to take every team the same way that you play. The one, number one team, the number 12 team, you got to play them exactly the same way. Talk about the team out in the community. I, I exchange messages with the president, Tony Kenny, all the time, who I've known for a very long time. Whether it be, unfortunately, going out to help empty the shelves at the Corpus Christi Food Bank, but when you're in the community, you become part of the community. What has that meant for you? How important is that? It's the most important thing, man. Besides, you know, stepping on that court, the community is everything. Um, it's what gets fans in the seat. 
Um, and, and it's what we enjoy doing. These guys really enjoy going into the community, get, talking to the kids, helping out at food banks, whatever the case may be, man. Like, we're really, really big on that. And I push that towards the, um, the guys, and I tell them every time, like, good job, guys, good job, fellas, for going out and doing what you're supposed to do as a professional athlete, not just on the court but off the court as well. And I think the island is really, really showing appreciation because, you know, fans are showing up to games, and, they, and they're really enjoying the fact that we're out in the community as much as we are. Quick mention of the NBA Finals. I know the boys are watching March Madness, watching their old alma mater, what have you. Nuggets, Denver Nuggets in the Finals for the first time in their 47-year history. Miami up 3-1 over the Celtics. If Jimmy Buckets has his way, Miami will advance. What do you like? Well, Miami lost last night. So now it's oh, 3-2. Um, That's right, 3-2. Pardon me. Yeah, so regardless of the situation, I like Denver to win it all. <laughs> I, think, I think they're a solid team. They play together as a team. They don't care who scores, who doesn't score, who shoots. They just play together collectively as a team. And it shows when you play that way, you know, now they're sitting waiting to play for the finals. And, and that's part of it. You know, basketball is a team sport. It's never going to be a time where individuals could just win a championship. Even Michael Jordan had to learn to play with his teammates before he won championships um, because he was getting beat year after year after year playing individual basketball. But once he figured it out and Phil Jackson came in and told him he needed to use his team, you see what happened. They ran off six championships. So, um, But I like Denver, man. I think they're a complete team. I think they, they're very unselfish, and they play the basketball the right way. For basketball fans, you can catch the Newfoundland Rogue in action against the Lebanon Leprechauns tonight at Mary Brown Center, tip-off at 7, and again Saturday night, same thing. Hopefully you can come together, make a nice deep playoff run, and we'll see you back at Mary Brown Center in a playoff game. For sure. Thanks for having me, man. It's still time to get tickets, man. So if you if you haven't purchased the tickets or haven't seen a game, come down. We have two more left here, and we're going to try to get back here for the playoffs. So come check us out. Good luck, Coach. All right, thanks, man. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Coach Jerry Williams, Newfoundland Rogues. Who do you want me to take before the break? I'm sorry, David. One? Fine. Let's go to line number one. Lindy, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Just wanted to talk a little bit about there was a man on there talking about Goodger's Cove for the water. Yeah. The, the, the drinking water? Yes, sir. That's a park there right now. It was years ago, too, as far as that goes, but now it's all done up. There's washrooms there. There's the water... Comes across through a hose from from uh, on the other side of the uh, Trescott Highway. But I drank I drank that water for years. I took the kids there when they were small. We camped there every summer. Great place for salmon fishing at that time. Do you know if anybody's ever tested that water? Because that was the big question that this gentleman had. Is the spring that he goes to, he's wondering why the government won't test it when apparently all you got to do is bring it to a variety place, DMV or the town hall, and they'll test it for you. So I'm told. Yeah, but uh, uh, the thing with Goodger's, with that water in Goodger's Cove, that's true north water. If you understand what I mean. I think I do. Yeah, that's a, a company that sells that sells that water, right? Okay. It's called True North. It's just on the other side of the highway, and that that's the same spring. I've been going. I've, I've been going there for fifty years, so <laughs> I'm still alive. I'm eighty-four now. I'm still alive from drinking that water. The beautiful, one of the best waters in Newfoundland, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so people tell me. Fair enough. Yeah. Like for me, I have the luxury of living in a part of the province where I can just turn on the tap and get really clean, healthy, clear, tasty water from Windsor Lake. Maybe the spring water out on the Pitts Memorial Drive or the one you're talking about is better, but. 
I, I guess we, you know we're one of the lucky ones because there's something like 125 water boil order advisories still in place here in the province. Some have been in place for years in certain communities. Yeah, understood. <laughs> Anything but, else? Uh, like I said, there's nothing wrong with that water in Goodrich Cove. Good, glad to hear it. Yes, sir, and there's plenty. There's plenty of water. There's <laughs> always was, and like I said, the 50 years has been running. That's how long I've been going there. And I still go there. Well, it hasn't slowed you down one iota, Lindy. No, sir. Not so far. I'm glad you called, buddy. Oh, do you think this COVID so, so slowed me down is the COVID. Sorry, say that again? I said the only thing that slowed me down is the COVID. Do you have it now? I No, I don't have it. I, I had it, but I don't have it now. But not the, not the COVID. The COVID shots. Oh. And I've talked to to a lot of people, and they say the same thing with their legs. And so has that problem gone away? No, it hasn't gone away, and uh, can't get a cure for it. Yeah, I don't know if there is such a thing as a cure for it. Uh, Although appreci- the strength has come back in my legs now, but I mean, I got to the point where if I stepped off the sidewalk, I'd, I'd fall right to the ground. Lost every bit of strength in my legs. Well, I hope you're going to do okay, Lindy. I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Thank and you. like I said, any time you want to go to a place to camp, good just cove. Sounds good. <laughs> oh, great. One of the greatest places around. Why we used to have some fun there years ago. I could use a bit of fun. Uh, thanks for this, Lindy. Off I go. Go Okay. Kay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Deborah does want to talk about the Ocean Newfoundland. And then Laura Winter, she's the executive director at Stella Circle. She's also in the queue. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Okay, let's go. Line number two, say good morning to the executive director at Stella Circle. That's Laura Winters. Good morning, Laura. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Doing very well, thanks. How about you? Oh, wonderful. Thanks so much for having us on here this morning. Happy to do it. Pardon me? I'm happy to do it. Awesome. So we are really excited to talk about our Run for Women that's happening this weekend. This is a big fundraiser for Stella's Circle. It's a Shoppers Drug Mart Run for Women, and this is a nationwide initiative that is supporting women's mental health, and Stella's Circle is the really lucky recipient of the funds raised here in St. John's. So this is happening on Sunday morning, and if folks are interested, there's still definitely time to sign up. The Running Room is a local partner as well, so you can sign up by going there. And for the folks who are already engaged and signed up, we've got a last push here uh, to raise funds for Stella's Circle, and the funds raised are going directly into our programs that support women in the community. So uh, take this for how it's intended. Why is it for women specifically when we're talking mental health? What is the distinction inside the programming, for instance? So our programs uh, at Stella's Circle that serve women's mental health are our Naomi Center Shelter for Young Women and the Just Us Women's Center, which supports women who are uh, experiencing um, corrections issues, so who are involved in criminal justice. These are really underfunded areas in the province. The Naomi Center Shelter is actually the only young women's shelter in the St. John's area. So this is for women 29 and under who are experiencing homelessness, 
lots of crisis in their lives, lots of challenges around mental health, addiction, um, histories of trauma, experiences of violence. These are really marginalized young women, and the resources across the sector in St. John's and across the province, I would say, around housing in general, but specifically women's housing and women's shelters, are just not meeting the needs. So the funds go directly into Naomi Center. And for the Justice Women's Center, the same thing, the resourcing for women who have criminal justice involvement in this province is dire. Um, other provinces have, you know, resources. They're part of national networks like Elizabeth Fry. We don't have those things here. The Justice Women's Center is the only game in town uh, to provide support for women when they are involved in criminal justice, when they're coming out of the Clarenville Correctional Center for Women. Our staff are out there every week supporting women, uh, running therapeutic programs, and then making those connections that are so important so women can move forward with their lives when they move on from that system and come back into St. John's. So I think it's for women because, unfortunately, women's programming is under-resourced in a big way Fair uh, enough. in this province and across the country. Reintegration from being incarcerated is a problem across the country, and I don't know how we compare it to other provinces, but you know, just focusing on what we do and where the gaps are is, is most important to me. I, I want to talk about the Naomi Center for a second. So when we talk about shelters, people need to realize this is not just bricks and mortar. It's not just a roof over your head. There has to be a guiding philosophy, whether it be with harm reduction or additional programs, dealing with emotional trauma, whatever the case may be. What is the guiding philosophy at the Naomi Center? Because I know it's more than simply a uh, roof over your head. Yeah, you got it, Patty. It's so much more than a roof over a head, and it's really about that harm reduction approach. It's about the fact that if a young woman is showing up in a situation of homelessness, missing a roof is not usually the main crisis in their lives. There's a lot that happens in the lives of young women that lead them into homelessness. And so it's about providing those wraparound supports around histories of trauma, violence in their homes of origin, violence in intimate partner relationships, um, ongoing struggles around addiction. And really this is about meeting young women where they're at and providing the supports that they need. We had 84 young women stay at Naomi Center last Last year, seventy um, percent of those young women exited into permanent housing solutions. I think that is like an astounding stat, given what we know about the housing crisis in this city. So our staff are working with the women while they're in the shelter. They're working with them to support them and their needs. They're working around finding more stable housing solutions. And then, you know, we're a point of contact and a, a point of stability in a young woman's life when she leaves Naomi Center. She can come back. She can get the resources, not only from those staff, but the entire Stella Circle services, because we do so much around real homes, real help, and real work that really is about that wraparound approach that people need uh, to be able to make the changes that they desire in their lives. So it's that harm reduction, it's that woman-centered approach, it's really meeting people where they're at and providing them the services that they want to need in the moment. Just so I uh, make sure I understood that correctly, you don't have to be living in the shelter to access services. You can indeed drop back after you've engaged with Naomi Center? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, we have young women who reconnect there. We um, have different resources available. And again, it's it's about that one point of connection, but it's about the many points of connection then and finding out where 
where else does that young woman need? Is it the St. John Status Women Council? Is it through other resources uh, across the community? So it really, you know, when we're talking about the challenges individuals face in their lives, it really is about widening their connection and support that can happen in their lives and that happens um, when they're in the shelter and then beyond that. And we talk about housing. I believe it was myself and you who talked about what we're seeing in homelessness now includes family homelessness, you know, which is just a remarkable phrase. It is, and I think, you know, it's a first in the province, and we're seeing more of it. Um, you know, there's multiple families in the system right now who are experiencing homelessness, who are in shelter. I know there was a article on VOCM this morning about the crisis in Gander and the fact that there's multiple people in hotels, and those hotels are going to be pivoting now to tourism. And so I think that, you know, the, the article talked about Gander, but that's certainly reflective of the issue across the province. And I think the stat is about 70% of folks in shelter are here in St. John's and the shelter system is just so overburdened. And certainly we're seeing that we run the Brian Martin Housing and Resource Center. Um, and so they are helping support folks move um, out of shelter and into affordable housing. We run 85 of our own housing units, soon to be 100, and we're increasing housing specifically for women because we know the resources are not there. So, you know, we're doing all we can and we, we want to continue to be responsive um, to this crisis that's happening around housing and homelessness in the city. Uh, very quickly before I have to go and we get some more details about participating in the run, what's happening with the employment services? Our employment services division, uh, we've got a really exciting piece coming up soon. So our adult basic education group is graduating uh, in June. We've got seven grads who are receiving their adult basic education. We always have ongoing uh, supports available around employment. That includes groups like skills support groups and development. And then the beautiful thing here is folks that are coming through and building their skills and their knowledge around employment can also get employed in our social enterprise like the Hungry Heart, like our Home to Stay, which does small renos, and uh, like our Clean Start cleaning enterprise. So if you're listening and you'd like to support Stella's Circle, we love donations. We also love people who engage with our social enterprises. So come down to Hungry Heart and have a scone, have your lunch. Um, employ our Clean Start team. They're a wonderful team. And all these programs employ participants. So they offer high-quality services, and they're training folks at the same time time so it's a really beautiful model that we have here within our employment services love it if i want to run on sunday what do i have to do you can go sign up in the running room if you haven't already the run is starting the whole event starts at 8 a.m down at the boulevard there's a 9 a.m start for the runs and again we're pushing that fundraising at this point uh, to get us to that finish line again the funds go directly into the programs that are supporting women's mental health through naomi center and the just us women's center Good luck this weekend. Keep up the good work, Laura, you and your team. Thanks, Patty. Yes, and shout out to the amazing team doing all that front line work. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're Bye welcome. now. Bye-bye. That's Laura Winter. She's the executive director at Stella Circle. Let's go to four. Deborah, you're on the air. Hello, Deborah. Yes. Oh, hi, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. Yeah. I just, with the, with the Mon Convocation in full swing uh, this week and next, I just thought I would weigh in on uh, on some of the thoughts that I had about this, uh, the old issue, you know? Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, 
I continue, I guess, to be gobsmacked by just how badly the, you know, the Mon's academic leadership is, is, uh, is handling the decision to ban the ode, you know? Um, Dr. Bose reaffirmed uh, recently that the ode is still on pause. Uh, in other words, it wouldn't be sung at, this, uh, at these convocations. And in effect, I guess, doubling down on last fall's public relations fiasco. You know, uh, I find it odd that he would apologize for the way it was handled last fall and then go on to announce it would remain persona non grata at convocation pending more thorough consultations, you know. He said, I think a few have been done, but he wants to do more, and uh, it could go into 2024, which I find find astonishing. You'd think that thorough consultations would have preceded such a decision in the first place last October, let alone the second one now, you know? Well, that's exactly what happened. They boxed themselves in, right? And he says quite clearly that they shouldn't have done it then before they had consultation, so they went and put the cart in front of the horse. Consequently, after a decision was made and they promised consultations, then they, of, guess, of course, have to follow through with them before they can reinstate or continue on the same path. So they created a very reverse-engineered process here. Well, you know, and it's, it, to me, it is still completely unclear who, if anyone, registered any sort of concern, offense, complaint that might have even prompted the decision last fall in the first place. I mean, the only people I've heard expressing concerns are the hierarchy at MUN. You know, the president, the former president, and a vice president, the people who made the decision. And uh, meanwhile, the ban stands. And now the hierarchy is saying the decision was intended to create safer and more welcoming spaces at convocation. And that jumped out at me. I mean, surely the implication is not that singing the ode poses some sort of threat to safety, you know. Uh, I mean, this kind of over-the-top and I think pointedly triggering language is is really troubling. I I would even go so far as to say it's irresponsible. It it seems to steer those who will be consulted to a predisposed outcome. I mean, um, in court, (laughs) I think this would be known as leading the witness, you know. It's... um, They say they're going to consult with international students, Labradorians, and indigenous. Fair enough, absolutely. And other key groups. I'm not sure who they are, but I would strongly recommend that those other groups would consist of equal representation from non-indigenous, non-international, Newfoundland students, MUN alumni, permanent community residents of the island portion of the province, as well as Labrador. And, you know, who I would suggest that all of those groups uh, that were not necessarily named specifically would have just as much, if not more, vested interest in Memorial and the Ode. Um, you know, you've said it many times, and you were bang on that inclusion is really important. It's a laudable goal, but by its very definition, inclusion means adding, not subtracting. You know, and that, that was my initial thought, and I'm sticking with it. You know, if we added the O to Labrador, and with all Absolutely. due respect to international students, who I welcome them, and hopefully they stay with their learned skills, but I would be shocked if any international student was put off 
by the singing of a song that they might not even be aware of at a convocation ceremony where their focus would be on uh, walking across the stage versus the uh, the musical choices being made. Plus, maybe they probably think, wow, that's cool. You guys have your own national anthem? I mean, yeah. I, I just don't know if that's actually even real that anyone cared as an international student. I would be completely surprised. Well, you know something? Last fall, I heard um, a series of interviews. Somebody went over to the university and interviewed a lot of international students in the wake of, of that first decision. Without exception, they all agreed that the ode should be sung. And one of them even said, one international student said, I wish my country had an ode like that. So again, who is the MUN hierarchy protecting? I mean, students are not reluctant to speak out if they have concerns about anything, whether they be indigenous or international or, or from Labrador. I have not heard one other person express a concern other than Dr. Bose, Dr. Timmons, and, and, uh, and the vice president last fall. Like, so who, who are they? I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, the fact that the decision was initially made by, by the executive of MUN, uh, you know, probably seven or eight people sitting around a table, you know, who, who, uh, who deigned to make a decision on behalf of, of the university, the students, the, the faculty, the extended community, the alumni. I mean, everybody in Newfoundland feels ownership of that university, you know, either because we went there or, or you know, parents paid for people to go there or because, you know, our, our not incidentally, some, you know, some of our tax dollars are helping to fund it. I mean, it is the provincial ode and the provincial university. And the two should go together, you know? I do, yeah. and I'm with yeah. you. And yeah. I, th I have a feeling that calmer or cooler, more common sense uh, minds will prevail here. And let's add to as opposed to take away. You know, eroding a ceremony as important as it would be for the families and those who are convoking that day, let's make sure it's as well-rounded as possible. But let's not uh, put a chisel to it, pretending that that's going to make things better. Well, you know something, and, and as a MUN graduate and, and somebody who spent my professional life in, in, in public relations, corporate communications, media, I mean, I find it astonishing that MUN's executive leadership, not to mention the university's fleet of communication staff, could remain, you know, so tone deaf, so resolutely indifferent, it seems, to the importance of the ode to so many people in this province. And, uh, I mean, it, the decision initially certainly flew in the face of basic communications principles. It was unexpected, it was abrupt, and it raised more questions than it answered, you know, and, and still seems to be doing it. And, uh, you know, one, one last point, if I can, uh, just about the ode itself, you know? I mean, it was, as most people know, it was written as a poem, you know, 120 years ago. And, I, I mean, I would go so far as to say it, it was a love song. It, it, this is not a militaristic ode. I mean, this was written by a person who came here, spent a few years, and clearly fell in love with the place. And uh, the first three stanzas are all about the beauty of, of, uh, of this province in all seasons. And uh, apparently it's the last ode that, that contains the, you know, quotation, grievous offenses, you know, um, uh, you're asking for divine protection of the place that, that uh, you know, our four, uh, forebears, our ancestors loved and that we in turn love. And, 
and and the word fathers too. I mean, I'm I'm an independent thinking woman, you know, and who spent my life in words, and I have never been offended by the word fathers. I understand the context in which it was written. You know, I'm a Mon graduate after all. I mean, I have enough cognitive ability and common sense to to realize that inherent in the word fathers is the word mothers as well, and collectively collectively it means all those who stood where we now stand. And, uh, I mean, if it's that verse that's so offensive, why is it that verse that is always consistently sung with such passion and such fervor, you know? And um, I don't know. I, I just, I just really hope, uh, as you say, the, that the uh, that the academic leadership and their advisors um, can see the damage that they're inflicting to so many other people in the province, uh, you know, to our our culture and on their own reputations, perhaps, you know. And um, and I'll I'll add one prayer <laughs> to that last stanza: God guard us from ill-conceived and poorly executed academic experiments. Yeah, as part of a flurry of issues with the strike, and then the issues surrounding Dr. Timmons and this, and the double of tuition. I mean, there's the infrastructure deficit. Seems to be bigger fish to fry at that particular school of uh, higher learning. I appreciate the time, Deborah. Thank you. Thanks for your time, Patty. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we are indeed going to have a conversation soon with the Minister of Digital Government and Service and Elder. Sarah Studley. Uh, don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, of course, we have plenty to discuss with the Minister of Digital Government and Service NL, that's Sarah Studley. So what we'll do is I'll just get us to the news. We'll come back and we'll start our final hour of the morning and the week with Minister Studley, and we appreciate her patience. So again, if you want to put some questions forward, whether it be about the pilot project regarding speed cameras, and absolutely regarding the Auditor General's report yesterday about food inspection and licensing, there has got to be a lot of important work done right away. So whether it be the cyber attack report from the Privacy Commissioner, the Auditor General's report, and the government's willingness to understand, to accept, and implement recommendations, we'll see where we are, even though that report was only two days ago. Still a lot to talk about. In regard to the ODE, so I've been asked that we just ignore reconciliation and leave this particular issue uh, alone, or just leave the ODE out of the convocation ceremonies. I don't think anybody wants to ignore reconciliation. My question would be, does removing the ode bolster or further reconciliation along at all? Does it move the needle even a tiny bit? Uh, I'm not so sure. So anyway, don't want to be obstinate about it, but if you have a different opinion than Deborah, you know what to do. You're more than welcome to join us, whether it be on Twitter, we're VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com, or you can join us live on the program while you pick up the phone during this news break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the Liberal member from outside. She's the Minister Responsible for Digital Government and Service NL. That's Sarah Studley. Minister Studley, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. If you happen to have us on a speakerphone, can you pick up the, the handheld? Because it'll be much clearer for the listener. Oh, sorry, I don't, um, but I'm in kind of a waiting area. Sorry, hopefully it's okay. Uh, not too bad. Okay, let's get going. Okay. So let's start with the speed camera pilot. Uh, I'm not too worked up about what locations were selected for being Mount Pearl and Paradise. I just wonder how that worked when we have some notorious speed zones like on the Outer Ring Road or Pitts Memorial. No doubt speeding inside municipalities is important, but how did that work? Absolutely. So um, speed cameras and getting them in as soon as possible has been a big priority for me. And I, I know it's been too long and I'm, I'm trying to push the teams as fast as we can. And so we have a team working on speed cameras right now. Um, and we came to a point where we needed some data. 
because uh, what I don't, what we don't want to do is clog up the justice system, right? Because if you get a ticket, you can test it, uh, as is your right. And then I'm actually standing in the line where people uh, are standing next to where people line up to contest tickets, actually. I'm um, having meetings downtown today. Uh, so we don't want to clog up the justice system and, and keep our, our police officers from doing their, their important work. So we need to get some data in terms of volumes and what kind of volumes we would expect so that we can automate as much as possible and build a system um, that reduces speed but also uh, doesn't take our police officers you know, from doing the important work that they're doing right now. Okay, so with jurisdictions that have used speed cameras for quite a long time, red light cameras or speed cameras, not talking about the legal language associated with it, understanding the volume based on traffic flow or what have you, what do you think we don't know? Because for some places, even for where I lived in Alberta, it was in place in the early 2000s. So where do we think the, got the knowledge gaps are? Oh, I guess it's just in terms of, of how many people are we going to catch um, and then how many cameras are we going to have uh, and then how many tickets we're going to issue, how many people are going to contest those tickets, and then there's a huge amount of administration that goes into, like, preparing the core packages and stuff for those tickets. So that's kind of what we're trying to get volume for so that we can automate. Um, and back to your, I guess, municipality questions where I missed that the first time. Um, we were really working with uh, the City of Mount Pearl and the Town of Paradise, just the two um, municipalities that came to us, because a big part of this is the municipalities and what elements do they manage and do they control. So they are both very interested and eager, and they were already working with us. And we said, you know, can we work together to get this in as soon as possible so that we can start getting some data and reduce the speed? And they were both really happy to help there. So um, it, we were all already working with both municipalities, and it's just really easy. So obviously the city of St. John's, you know, many of my constituents are in St. John's. Um, and we'll be, you know, I'm sure St. John's will be one of the first municipalities in our wider rollout. How do we understand through this pilot project about how many people will contest tickets because we're not assigning tickets, we're simply sending them a warning letter. So how do, we, how do we even understand anything regarding that if there's no tickets? I guess the primary thing is the volume. Uh, so we, we can tell from other jurisdictions, you know, what percentage of people are going to contest these tickets. Um, and also the, the work that goes into issuing the tickets is a lot of work as well. So we're just trying to figure out how, many, how much resources and, and how big and complex a system do we need uh, to issue the tickets, deal with the contesting of the tickets. So that's the meat of the problem that we're trying to solve with the pilot. Um, and also, how much work do municipalities want to put in? Uh, so, for example, right now, the city of Mount Pearl and Town of Paradise, they're actually the ones uh, doing the bulk of the work here. And so I'm really interested in hearing their feedback. You know, is this working? Is it not working? Are they happy with the amount of work they're putting in? Is it too much? Um, and then we need to look at what of that do we automate if we can make it easier on them and easier on the city of St. John's and all the other municipalities that might want to use a speed camera as they uh, look at their public safety on the road, roadways. Wouldn't it not be the province's responsibility to create the infrastructure or the bureaucracy to issue the tickets? Uh, so in different provinces, it works different ways. So um, the municipalities certainly have jurisdiction right now. Um, the city of St. John's does, the city of Mount Pearl does. I think some of the smaller municipalities might not. Um, it's about permission to issue moving violations. Uh, it's a bit technical. Um, and so with this, we might also need to modify some legislation. That's, so that's also a consideration for a wider rollout.
Okay, we'll see how the pilot works because, uh, uh, fair enough. Let's move off to the Auditor General's report because this is really quite something. Right off the bat, what exactly is your department's responsibility in inspections? Is it all your responsibility and then we move off to incorporating the Department of Health Community Services when there's something flagged? So who's responsible for the inspection? That's an excellent question. So the Department of Health and Human Services holds the legislation and uh, digital government personnel, mainly the service and outside, we do a lot of inspections on behalf of other departments. Um, and so the Auditor General's report is uh, particularly focused on the health side. And I guess I do want to say we appreciate the Auditor General's uh, recommendations. My department has accepted them all fully. Um, you know, we've already started uh, implementing a lot of changes as a result. And I do want to thank the environmental health officers because they do food inspections, uh, but they also do like daycare inspections, long-term care inspections, um, any kind of food or environmental health inspections. Uh, these dedicated staff do, and uh, you know I think Dr. General certainly made some recommendations around the quantity of inspections, um, and I think that that's absolutely fair. Now I think it's important to consider that the time period of the audit was during COVID. And so, you know, the, the chief medical officer of health at one point actually asked the environmental health officers to stop doing these inspections as a pivot. So they did contact tracing and they were doing kind of environmental health COVID related work. Um, and that took them off their normal food inspection report. Um, and so I think it's a quantity problem, not a quality problem. And so we are looking at how we better kind of make those things consistent and mobilize them to have more consistency across the province. In fairness, it's also a quality issue because they're talking about the uh, audits were not the miscal pardon me, miscalculated inspection scores to make businesses score better than they did. So it's not only quantity, it is quality. What is the process at the beginning of the fiscal year to ensure you hit the minimum number of inspections that are required? Because during 2019 to 2021, even through COVID, 16% fewer than the minimum required. So what's the process? Is there a, here's the target, here's how we're going to do it, and month by month we have a threshold that we have to achieve. If not, we have to fill up a backfill and a, a process for it. So just talk us through how you schedule a fiscal year for hitting the minimum requirement. Absolutely. And so I, I want to give the team a lot of results because they are very flexible and it's a kind of a risk-based risk approach. Um, and we can't have a defined schedule because these teams build a range of inspections and they focus on kind of high, medium and low priorities. Uh, given kind of, uh, there's a lot of considerations that goes into kind of the ranking of those. And we also respond to complaints. Um, so if we're getting complaints about the issues, they might, uh, you know, that would impact whether it's high, medium, or low. Um, and so that's how they kind of prioritize. And I guess it's, they also spend a lot of time trying to get to rural areas. And so I know one of the, um, you know, uh, criticisms, I guess, in the report was around some rural locations and we have visited in all, and in some instances, not instances not in all in, in so many years. Um, and I agree completely. We fully accept the Auditor General's recommendations there. Um, one example, though, of that, just to give your listeners some color to that, um, the Black Tickle in Labrador is an island, and there's no ferry, and there's no helicopter service. Um, and so my team have been trying to work with uh, the food establishment in uh, Black Tickle, um, and we've been trying to get on some. Um, Health authorities, transportation to Black Tickle, and, and my team kept, keeps getting pushed off. Uh, so, and they don't have the bandwidth to do kind of a bit virtual inspection. So, we're trying to work with them to see what other means we can use to, to do inspections there. Um, and so, we try and prioritize. Uh, but, you know, we certainly accept their recommendations and are going to uh, up our game a bit in that area.
is that reference to the audit that says the one Labrador business had not been inspected since 2014? Is that the Black Tech Coalition? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so when it comes to miscalculation inspection scores to make it look like the business scored better than they did, what does that mean and what's behind that? Um, so I don't think there's anything malicious. I, I hope there's nothing malicious going on there. Um, my understanding was that there was some you know, manual error. Um, and we're certainly going to be triple-checking that moving forward and putting processes in place so that that doesn't happen. And so another distinct gap that's brought forward by Denise Hanrahan, it says, in this regarding uh, quarterly file audits, only 7 of 77, or 9% of the required quarterly file audits were completed during our scope, our scope period. So which is really not a COVID impact-related matter. That's an organizational or an infrastructure matter. So what needs to be done to ensure that these filings are done in a timely fashion? Because it's one thing to do with the inspection, quite another for the paperwork, and then the communication between your department and health to, to, to take place. Absolutely. Um, so I think the, the memorandum of understanding that my department had with uh, health um, was going back many years, and so the team was taking this opportunity to kind of revamp that and relook at that. And I think uh, some of that might have been a case of the, the expectations didn't meet the practice, and um, I think maybe some of the some of the written policies were probably out of date. Uh, but also, obviously, you know, I fully uh, acknowledge that our team, you know, we didn't. Uh, meet what was in the previous memorandum of understanding. So we're now working with health to update update that to reflect, I guess, the needs of the Department of Health and Human Services and their expectations today um, so that we can provide better, more accurate service for the province. So the, the memorandum of understanding was first uh, brought to bear in 1995, hasn't been updated since 1999. I'm not going to hang it on you or the Liberal government for what happened between 1999 and 2015, but just tell us what that actually, what that relationship looks like and why there's a memorandum of understanding required inside a working, functioning government with different, with different departments that need to understand what each other is doing, not operate in silos, as people say. So what is actually associated with that MOU? Um, so I think that's an excellent question, and I struggle with this too, um, you know, the different ways that government gets business done uh, in terms of working with other departments. And, you know, the structure of service and L is that we do a lot of work on behalf of other departments, and we try and make that as collaborative as possible. Um, it's not always possible. So the memorandum of understanding is essentially the contract or, or the, the unofficial um, wording that the Department of Health uses to set their expectations for my department. And obviously, the, uh, the Department of Health, they're really busy. Uh, my team are really busy. I think they, uh, you know, fully accept responsibility that uh, together we haven't, um, I guess, prioritized revisiting the memorandum of understanding to make sure that it's, it's fit for purpose for today. Uh, and so the team are, are already working on that. Okay, very quickly, and this is just a couple of quick ones that just popped in my mind. With the speed camera program and so many unreadable license plates out there and the absence of front license plate, plates in this province, do those two things need to change for this to work properly? So uh, peeling plates, so the software uh, that's in the camera, uh, we do anticipate it will be able to read some of the peeling, peeling plates. But I, I do want to clarify for listeners that... Um, it's, it's, you know, it's your responsibility to have a driver's um, a plate that is readable and, and that is not healing, essentially. Um, we know that there was a problem with a certain batch of license plates in it, all of Lancet Canada. Um, I don't have the year off the top of my head. Um, and so that is a problem, and you can come into motor registration and we'll give you a new plate at no charge. 
uh, but it is important that people have readable license plates. Uh, so that, you know, I, I, I'm not sure right now, um, using the camera technology that we're using in the pilot, um, I'm hopeful we're going to be able to read most license plates, but I'm not 100% sure, and uh, that's some of the, the information that we'll be getting from the pilot. What about some of the license plates where the owner of the vehicle has chosen to put a pretty dark uh, cover over their license plate for whatever reason they do it? Are we going to have to amend something to take, have those taken away because there's no way the camera can read those plates? That's an excellent question, and those are not legal today. So if you have a cover over your license plate, um, whether it's clear or whether it's uh, tinted, uh, that is not currently allowed under the regulations, and so you could get a ticket for that today. So we don't need to make a change. It's just so there might be an enforcement change there, but I, I can't really speak to that. What's the leeway over the posted speeding limit? Is it one kilometer over, 10 kilometers over, whether it be in this pilot and or eventually if it comes to pass in full? That's also an excellent question. I've had that a lot. So I certainly, you know, we're, we're not going to be looking to give someone a ticket or send out a speed detection notice if you're going one or two or three or four kilometers over the speed limit. Um, another thing I, we're trying to get in the pilot is what are those thresholds? Where are people speeding? Uh, you know, how much over the speed limit? So uh, right now in the pilot, we're looking at, I think, 11 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. You'll get a speed detection notice or, you know, if it's more than 10. Um, but this is going to inform also the rollout, you know, and we'll be working with law enforcement uh, in terms of what that, it'll be law enforcement's decision, really, in terms of when someone gets a ticket, uh, what, what percentage that is. With so much more of our information going to be housed through MyGovNL, oftentimes people go on and the system is down or it's unavailable. What sort of work is being done to enhance, enhance that service? Because if we're going to pile more and more data in there, we're going to have to expand the opportunity for that to be working more often than it is. Um, so I guess I would challenge that uh, statement. So it, it does, we did have an issue last spring uh, with the vendor, um, and that was in the media with my governor. I think we've had two instances since then where it, where it was down for a day. We, up, we, we did a significant upgrade to the technology, and it had to come down for a day or two, I think. Um, but if you, if you think about my governor, it's more of like a storefront. Um, so we're not putting things in MyGovernel. MyGovernel is like the entryway. It's like you're going into the mall. That's MyGovernel. And you go to Winners or you can go to another store or another store. Um, and so all of those different services are going to be in MyGovernel and accessible through MyGovernel. So I, I certainly apologize for anyone who's been inconvenienced uh, by trying to do a service online and they haven't been able to. Uh, but, you know, our, my, our, our and my priority is to have that available, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time. We, we will not have significant outages. Um, and it's more of the, the storefront and the window to a range of services, and, you know, there will be a lot more services going in there. Oh, I, I appreciate that analogy. Very last one. The Privacy Commissioner's report on the cyber attack, of course, it's about the Centre for Health Information, Department of Health Community Services. But as the Minister responsible for a digital government, does your department have any doings or any role in that, whether it be identifying vulnerabilities, were you privy to that information a year prior to the Meditech hack, or what does your department have to do with any of that period? Uh, so that's an excellent question. So during that, what, you know, while it was happening, uh, I was not part of the core team, uh, but my this OCIO team was very much involved, you know, looking, doing a full analysis in the core government system, uh, and thankfully there was no impact to the core government system. We have taken this opportunity to do a significant improvement, I think, to a range of our capabilities. Um, we are investing a lot more time and effort into that at the moment. 
Uh, we're also working collaboratively with health and uh, other agencies, boards, and commissions because um, I think if there's an incident in one of our smaller organizations, and I think there will be, you know, ideally, hopefully not, but, um, you know, if there's a, uh, an issue in one of our smaller organizations, like Labrador Housing, or, you know, even though they have their own IT systems, I think it's still uh, government's responsibility. So we are kind of trying to lean in and help and make sure that all of our agencies for the commissions or, or the bigger ones or the ones with uh, resident data, that we, we make sure that we can deliver a consistent um, cybersecurity, not experience, but like a consistent level of assurance, I guess. Um, that's very important. I wish we had more time because I'd like to talk about your responsibility for the Office of the Chief Information Officer, but maybe we'll touch base on that another time in the future. But we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's uh, Sarah Sudley. She's the Liberal member from Mount Sio, of course, member the Minister responsible for Digital Government and Service NL. Take a break. When we come back, roadside brush clearing, roadside signs, and then whatever you want to talk about, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Jeff, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's great to be talking to you today. Happy to have you on the show. Uh, Patty, uh, earlier this morning, I heard one of your callers. He um, noted that there's a, a common uh, roadside spring uh, that people use for drinking water, and uh, that a provincial official indicated that they wouldn't put up any, I guess, public health uh, information about drinking water because uh, he said the sign might blow away. No, no. So, the, uh, the government said that sign might blow away. The caller said yeah, that's nonsense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, so the government said that that the sign might blow away, and uh, I think any rational uh, listener would consider that excuse to be, uh, you know, flimsy if not outright pathetic. Right. So, that reminded me of another situation that I've made you aware of personally uh, before, Patty, and that's uh, there's a, a missing. Uh, sign for the Trans-Canada Highway uh, on Portugal Cove Road uh, for the exit. And I sent an email to the Department of Transportation uh, three years ago that that sign was missing. So as you come north on Portugal Cove Road, uh, past the Newfoundland Drive intersection toward the airport, uh, there's a, a sign that indicates up ahead the westbound exit and the eastbound exit for the Trans-Canada Highway are approaching. So, uh, you know, you're familiar with those green signs with the maple leaf and the number one. So as you travel uh, past that sign, there is the sign for Trans-Canada Highway East. And as you continue north, there, uh, in order to get to the um, west um, off-ramp, there's two lanes, and then there's a left-hand turning lane that you have to get into. Now, before you reach that turning lane, there's an empty uh, wooden post, and that's where the, the sign would be. So I mentioned three years ago I sent an email to the Department of Transportation, and with last year being come home here, I noticed that that sign that was still missing. And it would stand a reason if you had a bunch of people coming home uh, for come home year, they may very well, you know, have moved from the province before the Outer Ring Road was built. You also might have all kinds of tourists coming to tour around. 
uh, I would imagine a lot of people, if they took the ferry, might beeline it right to the city. And then when they go to visit, say, Bonavista or Trinity or all these other tourist locations, they may leave the city and want to get on the highway to go west, but would not know where it is. So I said, geez, someone's got to help these people. So, uh, and twofold. So anyway, I took an old piece of wood, and then I took out a black Sharpie marker, and I put in big block letters, T-C-H West, and an arrow pointing towards where that exit is. And I went up to that empty uh, post, and I attached the sign that had been missing for years. Anyway... After two years or more of inaction, uh, to put the sign up, my sign was taken down. And I know for a fact that the wind didn't blow it off because I used two three-inch galvanized nails and drove them in with the back of my hatchet. So I just, uh, you know, wanted to uh, make... The the province where so the communications people are able to come up with uh, a flimsy excuse, uh, if not pathetic, as to why that sign isn't up there. And at the ministerial level, they can all start to discuss amongst themselves uh, if a memorandum of understanding uh, might need to be developed in order to get that sign put up. So anyway, that's it for me, Patty. And I just want to say... Because you're such a fine fella, I've sent an email to um, uh, JLAC and asked him to put uh, Tall Trees by Matt Mays and El Torpedo on um, uh, Big Tom Shed for you tomorrow. <laughs> I hear it on the uh, Nooner a lot. I like Matt Mays. Uh, anyway, myself and Mike Sparrow will catch him when he comes to town. I uh, appreciate the time, Jeff. Thanks for this. Alrighty, take, take care. care. Bye-bye. And thanks for the song request. All right, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, roadside brush clearing. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line seven. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you and David and the listening public. Yeah, my topic this morning, David, is brush, uh, Patty, is brush cutting. Uh, very important, I do believe, to the traveling public, uh, try to prevent them from being in a moose accident. Actually, I just passed by Goobies, I'm on the Trans-Canada, pull over, uh, where I had my accident. And at the time when I had my accident, the brush was right next to the highway, and about a 500-pound cow came through my windshield. Moose, and uh, so uh, the brush being cut back then is making a difference. There's no doubt about that, and the general public will tell you the same. Uh, I, I just want to thank the government now because you know I've been complaining ever since I started SOPAC back in 2009. SOPAC and I have been complaining, and uh, I just want to you know thank them now. The brush is cut between Appleton and Gander. And they got a, the contractor got a real good job down there, and it's cleared back a good distance, and that's perfect. Thank you. And uh, like I know, I've been complaining about the Gander Bay Road, as you know, because uh, you take my calls. And they did some brush cutting on the Gander Bay Road also recently. So that's a big thank you to 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 the government for doing that, and other areas where they've been cutting brush lately. Uh, I just want to mention uh, a, a very serious area where brush needs to be cut, Patty, because we've had three people killed in that area last year. And that's between uh, Badger and Southbrook. 
uh, the brush needs to be cut bad. I had I had a, a, car, a phone call yesterday to that effect also, and and uh, you know, and on the Baybert Peninsula, there's there's areas there that's really bad. Now, wildlife know it, uh, forestry know it, uh, the Department of Transportation know it. So it should get done, Patty, because, you know, we had hundreds of accidents last year. We had three people killed. It's very important. If you're going to keep the number of moose that we got, we got to try to protect our general public. And uh, the brush cutting program is very important. What do you think? Well, I mean, we've talked, I don't know how many times over the years, but I have long contested one of the very most effective ways to give people a chance on the highways and byways to see a moose coming is if the alders aren't hanging over the shoulder of the road. So you cut back the brush and we can actually possibly see a moose coming. I've long thought it's probably between that and speed, based on the time of day, are probably the two most important things you can do to protect yourself. So you know what I think on this one. Yes, I do. I do. I knew what you were going to say, actually, yes. And, uh, Patty, I remember the first meeting. I'm going to be quick. The first meeting I had back some uh, in 2009 when I formed SOPAC uh, was in Cornerbrook with, with the Deputy Minister of Transportation. He said, Mr. Nippert, he said, what more can we do to prevent people from being in moose accidents? And I said, well, why don't we start cutting the brush along the highway? Because back then, the only area was ever covered was where there was new construction, which was very, very little. And then we got that program put in place, and I do believe it has saved lives. But we're not—we haven't got enough done. And what, if the government would listen, you know, I'd take them for a minute now and complain. If they would listen and grub it off, I go seed it and have the seed like we're doing in New Brunswick. And I just came from Scotland, and they got so much, you know, done over there. It's unbelievable. And they got deer, which is two or three hundred pounds. Our moose could be up to a thousand pounds. You know, and and the, and the other thing, the most expensive thing probably would be the fencing. But you know, areas like where we had three people killed last year between Badger and and Soapel, that should be fenced. That's a hot spot. That's what we talk about hot spots, like we got on the west coast where we got that 16 kilometers many years ago. But uh, that's that's my verdict for this morning. And uh, thank you, government, for doing the brush cutting. Keep it going. And areas where I've been emailing you and where the SOPAC been emailing you, and I will email SOPAC on this now and and the minister. That these two areas very important uh, between Badger and Southbrook and on the Bayvert Peninsula needs to be done ASAP. Please do it. You will save lives. Appreciate this this morning. Have a good one, Patty. Good weekend. Have a good weekend. Same to you, Eugene. Take care. Thank you, brother. Bye. Welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the, I get the title right here, the Corporate Communications Manager at Marine Atlantic is Daryl Mercer. Good morning, Daryl. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a call yesterday from a fellow who had booked passage on Marine Atlantic, had booked a berth, and then was told that he wouldn't be able to get his own because there was priorities given to truckers that if they paid, I think, an upgrade fee, they get priority for a single berth. Is that the case? And if so, why? So right now, we're it, it's a balancing act. We have a limited amount of cabins on each crossing, and, and they're in high demand. So... Through the pandemic, there were some changes made to how commercial customers would would take uh, would take a berth on on the ferry. So pre-pandemic, they would share a room; it would just be a single berth in in a two-berth uh, cabin. So they would share the room during the pandemic for obvious reasons. Um, sharing berths with with strangers certainly wasn't the preferable option. So we we introduced single berths, so everybody would have a cabin. Uh, there wouldn't be any risk of sharing COVID-19 and, and and spreading it any further. So as we progressed out of COVID-19, we we returned back to the double berthing. But what the commercial industry said is that we have drivers that are not comfortable with that scenario for any number of reasons. So we'd like to continue with the the single berthing. 
So what we've done is we've we've allocated a n- certain number of cabins per crossing for our commercial customers. So right now uh, the number is 35. So there's 35 cabins. Some of those will be for double bunking because obviously some ch- customers um, they don't mind sharing a cabin. It could be with somebody they know, or even if it's a, somebody they don't know, they're willing to do that because it's a, a cheaper cost. But once all of the commercial customers uh, go through that process, there are some some of those 35 cabins that would be available, and then the commercial customer would have the choice if they want to upgrade that cabin to be single. So they would pay the additional fee uh, to to obtain the single berth cabin, and that's basically the process that we have in place right now. Why preference given to commercial traffic? I mean, is this a reaction to the complaints you were getting during the pandemic about them double bunking, or is there something different about commercial traffic versus passenger vehicles? Well, I, I know commercial customers would certainly say that uh, they're a very important part of of the traveling public. They have a, an important role to play. Of course. Um, they, they have hours of rest to, to try to get uh, regulatory requirements fulfilled. So if they don't get that rest, for example, then the shipments will be delayed. So having that hours of rest piece, we're trying to facilitate, give them the option of, of getting the sleep on the vessel. They can't book in advance. That's different than, than what we would see with a, a regular passenger who can book in advance. So when we look at the overall number of cabins on the vessel, uh, the vast majority are still available for regular passenger use, but we felt that 35 was a good number that would be available for our commercial customers. That would allow those who are willing to double berth uh, can still go that route, but then there are so many cabins that would be available for an upgrade for those that, that want to, to go that route. So it's a balancing act, uh, Patty. I mean, when we look at the number of cabins that we have, it's very finite. We we can't include any additional cabins right now on the vessel because of infrastructure challenges. So when we look at the commercial customer needs and the passenger needs, uh, it becomes much more pronounced as we head into the summer season and we see a whole lot more travelers. So it's trying to, to be fair to everybody and give everybody uh, the opportunity to meet the requirements that they have. This time next week, there's going to be an increase of the fuel surcharge going from 13% to 17%. The provincial government has said they're considering legal action. What's Marine Atlantic's uh, comment regarding that consideration? So the, the new fuel surcharge is, is designed to help us recover uh, the, the increased costs that we're paying for fuel. It's Right now, it it's covers about 30% is what the, the new change will be. And I mean, when we look at our fuel costs over the past number of years, in 2020, 2021, it was 14 million. Then the following year, it was 27 million. This year, it's 52 million. So we have uh, so much revenue that comes in. We're, we're subsidized by the government of Canada, but we also have a cost recovery mandate. So what we're trying to do is, is take back the money, uh, a fraction of the money, actually, of what we're paying for fuel. So we felt that changing the fuel surcharge right now uh, from 13 to 17%. And, Patty, that, that new fuel surcharge is simply a calculation based upon what we've paid for fuel over the last six months. So since December, the, the average is going to be now the 17% fuel surcharge uh, as of June 1st. When we get to December the 1st, we're going to look at all of our fuel purchases again during that period. And then there will be a calculation, and it's strictly based on, on the price of fuel. So it could go up, it could go down, depending on what happens in the international fuel market. Cost recovery is the biggest problem, I think, for the traveling public, and you have to recover costs of the tune of 65%. You know, it's one thing to offer the type of surroundings on your vessels, but also the ticket price is a big thing for doing the best you can for your customers. Is there any conversation ongoing with the federal government to restructure that cost recovery? Because that's a big bulk of the ticket price that I will pay, commercial or individual traffic so 
are we trying to negotiate that at all? Because it seems to me that would be one area where you could do the best for your customer to control prices. Well, we're a federal crown corporation that reports into the Minister of Transport, and, and obviously we're heavily subsidized. We, we don't make a profit. The government of Canada gives us a significant subsidy each year. So from that perspective, we're, we're trying to, to balance what, what the taxpayers of Canada invest into our service with what customers have to pay. So it, it's not an easy solution. We, we, by looking even at the fuel costs and how much they've jumped in just the last couple of years, the federal government has been very, uh, I guess, when you look at during the pandemic and our inability to meet cost recovery, they've been very accepting of that, recognizing the circumstances, and have worked with us uh, through that very difficult period. But again, that's that's a discussion that uh, that takes place with uh, with people who are in higher positions than than myself. And uh, but but having said that, the, the the government of Canada has invested significantly in our service, and we also have a new vessel that's going to be entering service next year. So. So again, it's, it, there's a lot of considerations, and I'd leave that to uh, to other people to decide. Regarding fuel surcharge, I can't remember the exact numbers. I have too much stuff floating around my poor mind. But there's a certain threshold that you hit that allows you to increase a fuel surcharge. When that threshold is not hit, have we ever seen that result in a reduction in fare or fees? Well, this new new fuel surcharge is strictly based on the cost of fuel. So our previous fuel surcharge, it took into other factors such as uh, our fuel purchasing program. We had a hedging program that was in place, uh, some new environmental regulations such as SICA, uh, which reduced sulfur emissions, uh, and some operating expenses that were also built into it. So the new formula is is just strictly the price of fuel and that'll all be posted to our website so every time we get a lift of fuel and we get eight to ten uh, lifts into port basque in our fuel tank farm there each year once we get one of those it'll be posted to our website and then people can see how much we're paying for it and then there's a corresponding chart which will show exactly what the price will be so if we're paying a dollar fifty uh, and the f- price of fuel drops and, and we start paying ninety three cents uh, a liter then obviously there will be a decrease in the fuel surcharge now it, the opposite is also true if we see an increase then the fuel surcharge will go up but we're trying to be as transparent as possible by posting the information on the website and then people can make a decision of when they want to book if they see that the price of fuel is is heading downwards then they may decide well i'm going to wait until the updated fuel surcharge is in place and i'll make my booking then because all of the bookings right now are going to be based on when you you book not the time of travel so it won't change if you book right now uh, for a crossing in july you'll pay the fuel surcharge today not the one that will be in place in july last one this regarding cost uh uh, trying to control costs. So Transport Canada is picking winners and losers. You're our highway, right? If I'm tr- trying to travel, whether it be in a transport truck or in my own passenger vehicle, you're my only option to get off the island. They froze the toll at the Confederation Bridge. Here's a p- coming directly from Transport Canada. Freezing tolls for the 2023 on the Canadian uh, Confederation Bridge will support PEI residents and businesses who've been hurt, hit hard by continued pandemic impacts, high inflation, and most recently Hurricane Fiona, especially during economic rebuilding and recovery. Is that a message that Marine Atlantic should or would be willing to entertain in uh, talking with Minister Olagbar, who's the Minister of Transportation, because they picked the winner in PEI and they kind of turned a blind eye to us? Well, we're constantly in contact with uh, the government of Canada. I mean, we we have a very good relationship with with Transport Canada, and again, it's 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 a discussion that takes place. Uh, we have uh, you know, a subsidy that we receive each year. We have a corporate plan that outlines our expenses and our our, our revenues. Uh, all of that's taken into 
consideration in, in the discussion process. Uh, what decisions are made at a, at a political level or a higher level? Again, that's that's a higher level than, than I can comment on. I know discussions are, are always taking place between uh, not only Marine Atlantic, but also the provincial government and the federal government. So I'm sure those discussions will continue, but uh, as of right now, uh, we have a fuel surcharge that we're, we're going to be implementing, and that'll change every six months. Appreciate your time this morning, Daryl. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Daryl Mercer, Corporate Communications Manager uh, at Marine Atlantic. So on behalf of those who agree or think similarly to how I do here, we're calling on the Minister of Transport federally, Omar Alagra, to do exactly what they've done for the Confederation Bridge and the freezing of tolls, maybe the freezing of any additional costs of travel via Marine Atlantic, given the same issues with economic rebuilding and recovery in this province. Let's take our final break of the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Donald, you're on the air. Hello, Paddy. How are you today? Okay. How you doing? I got a lawnmower there for sale. Could I announce it on your line? Sure, I suppose. I thought you were giving one away, but sure. What do you no, got? No, no, I can't give it away. <laughs> right. She's in excellent condition. She's lacquered. I'm selling it for $80. And if anybody here interested is welcome to her. You can contact me at 763-9142. Thank you. Anytime, Donald. Good luck with it. You have a good weekend, Betty. You too, buddy. All the best. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All, right. All right, there you go. Dave, do we want to populate the line with one more before we run out of time here today? Yeah, Dave's going to – I guess there's a pile out there that we can get to. So, <laughs> interestingly, you know, it's whatever the comment is that you have to offer, I mean, bring it on, whether you be in favor of or opposed to anything you heard from a caller or heard from me, all fine with me. Certainly no – no problem. I don't take it personal. It's okay. I do receive a litany of really interesting insults throughout the, the course of the day, especially in my email inbox. I don't mean to giggle, but somebody so patently stupid that it is worth a giggle every now and then, I suppose, just to keep me sane. But look, and again, if there's topics that you don't think get enough attention, I, I say this as often as I can is that it's really not up to me what we talk about. It's entirely up to you. So if you wanted to talk about whatever, the best way, I mean, if you want to suggest it via email, I'll try to bring it up however you think will provoke conversation. But if it's something that needs more elaboration or something that we don't discuss at all, all you have to do is call the show, and we'll get it on the air. Let's go to line number two. Irene, you're on the air. Hi, Irene. Hi, Patty. Hi there. How are you today? I'm okay. How about you? We don't have much time, oh, so let's go. What's on your I mind? I know. I wanted. I, I just wanted to call you and speak to you. Um, the lady called in. I thought it was one day last week, maybe the first of the week. Anyway, she was referring to the um, uh, the vaccine being promoted for children and about the percentage of people that had developed uh, um, autoimmune illnesses, who had fertility issues and whatnot. And actually, I, I felt that you sort of dismissed her based upon uh, her not having, uh, you know, been proven and whatnot. Yeah, some but so, I do. Put it this way. To tell me that one in four children under the age of 12 are now being rendered infertile, based on what? Are we actually doing fertility tests on children? Or where does that number come from? Sounds like it's made up yeah, to me. I, I, and, and I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to, and, and the reason for my call, is uh, I work in the healthcare profession. Uh, my doctor actually said, you should sue the government. 
And I said, how can I sue the government? Well, they mandated that, that I took the vaccine. I had no history of rheumatoid arthritis. And continue now today, a year later, uh, left my job in the healthcare industry because I couldn't continue to work. And a year later, taking massive doses of prednisone to combat the pain until I get through the cycle. Explain. I never had no history. My family has no history. Nobody in my circle have a history of autoimmune diseases or illnesses. And I developed a a, a, a tremendous uh, uh, diagnosis of, auto, of, of rheumatoid. I, I'm sorry to hear that. But of course, when we were talking about children and vaccines, no children were ever mandated to get a vaccine under the age of 12. So when, you make, when people make some of those claims, I think it just kind of derails honest conversations about these things because, and then she said she had made reference to 170 vaccine injuries in this province. If that's the total number, then that represents 0.035% of the population that suffered any unfortunate side effect, whether it be an injury or otherwise. So I just try to have conversations based on what's actually happening versus what people might think is happening. And I'm really sorry to hear that it had the impact it did on you, if there's a direct line between the vaccine and your condition. And, and again, again, that is not, as you, uh, to phrase you, proven anywhere. Very coincidental, though, uh, that uh, uh, where this would develop, very questionative in my mind, in terms of the lady who spoke about fertility. All I remember of her conversation was how it related to me and that, yes, she's right. I'm one person. I don't know what kind of studies she did or, or whatnot, but, you know, I'd certainly be interested to to know the numbers on that. I mean, the fertility issue, the point I'm making there is we're not doing fertility tests on 11-year-olds. So to come up with a number based on how many children are now infertile is just made up. And this is not to be disrespectful to one person or other because I don't know her. But if we're not mm-hmm. doing those tests, we're really just making stuff up, which makes the vaccine conversation extremely difficult to navigate. I didn't think I'd well, be well, more... I, pardon me? I'll give you the last I, word because we just cleared 12 o'clock. Go ahead, Irene. I, I, I kind of kind of miss, maybe misunderstood a little of what, what she said in terms... I was thinking that she was saying, why are we promoting the vaccine to children under those ages if it's showing people are developing autoimmune disease illnesses because of the vaccine. I Again, bl- nothing proven, Patty. No, I, and I think the only people that are being encouraged to get a vaccine any longer are people over the age of 65 who are immunocompromised. I don't think there's anyone else being told to go get a vaccine any longer. I don't think so. I mean, and, I and there's probably there's probably not, but at the time, I was in the healthcare industry, and I was mandated to get the vaccine or lose my position. Well, as it happened, I had to leave my position anyway because of my illness. I'm sorry to hear that it happened to you, and I'm not trying to cut you short, but it's 12.01 oh, no. 30 seconds, so I appreciate your time. I hope you have a nice Thank weekend. Thank you so much, Patty. Take care. Thank You're welcome. You. Bye-bye. All right, good show today, good shows this week. We will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.